I found Halloween so interesting as it, like a kind of thing that was culturally imported from the US like during my lifetime like oh yeah yeah it was never really much of a thing and like my friend circles when I was like a child and now it's like everywhere mostly because it's like a commercial uh, like success to do mm-hmm. to do dumb shit that's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> and also because everything's even more globalized now but I do find that interesting how like yeah like it's fun but in a way given how commercial of a event it is I kind of hope it doesn't get to there Mm, like yeah if you know like yeah also because like there is other shit here that would have happened during autumn in the past that now like kind of just gets overshadowed by consumerism imported from the US so what are you going for as Halloween (laughs) I don't think I'm going anywhere on Halloween I, I might like be on someone's stream or something. I don't know. I have no plans yet. Brian, any plans? Uh, no, probably just sitting at home and crying because I won't have a job anymore. Well, welcome to the club, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so many possible worlds, but we got this one. So many possible worlds, but we got this one. Welcome to the worst of all possible worlds, the first and only podcast with no job prospects whatsoever. (laughs) I'm the worst of all possible Josh's. I'm the worst of all possible Brian's. AJ is out this week. He is currently building a gigantic ziggurat in the Arabian (laughs) desert. He says that he's going to meet God and folks... Is he going to do it? Well, we'll find out in a couple weeks. And so joining us today uh, is a returning guest, somebody who we're very excited to have again. Uh, You might know her from uh, leaking the United States government no-fly list or just from being a a tiny kitten in real life. Uh, It is, of course, the one, the only Maya Arson Crimeu. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Hi, I'm glad to be here again. I still am pretty convinced that H.A. is a myth. Uh, I have <laughs> like uh, it's it. I have never managed to meet H.A. in my both times being here now. Yeah, I'm not sure why that is exactly. Um, and 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 he does, of course, send his regards uh, mm-hmm. and his regrets. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll we'll figure this out somehow. Uh, but yeah, we you know every week on this show we do a case study in the pop culture of a dying empire, and this week we were interested in taking a look at a cyberpunk classic. Because we've talked about cyberpunk stuff on this show in the past, both in our Deus Ex episode and, of course, in our Hackers episode, which, Maya, you guessed it on. And uh, I think it was a maybe a couple months that I reached back out to you and was like, hey, we're thinking about maybe talking about a literary classic in the cyberpunk genre, specifically William Gibson's Neuromancer. And you were immediately like, oh, hell yeah, I'm on board. Yeah, like this is like, I don't know, I've been meaning to finally get into the cyberpunk literature as well. And I was like, yeah, hell yeah. And then it took me until this week to finish reading it. Uh, as as yes. always, I'm like, we we have talked about this for like almost half a year at this right. point. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, like I have to read this for the podcast. I'm not reading this for any other reason. No, <laughs> I don't know. It's I'm no just reason. so bad with like deadlines. I think the reason that we were interested in having you on the show again specifically is, of course, that you having experience with being a hacker and so on, it was very much germane to your interests. And in a little bit, we're going to like get into the actual book and sort of how it came about and talking about the plot. But at this point, I was just kind of wondering, like, first thoughts, first impressions on this book, the experience of reading it. How did it make you feel? What were you thinking? 
And uh, in general, how did it land for you? I think this is a really good book. And like the most interesting thing about it, honestly, like to already go ahead with this is that like you can see so much of what this book uh, and like also Philip K. Dick started in this era mm-hmm. is still like everywhere. It's like all mm-hmm. the tropes, not not just in cyberpunk, but it, like it went on to shape the rest of sci-fi as well. I also think it's interesting that, that Gibson is someone who had like no idea about technology managed no. <laughs> to write so convincingly about like what it feels like to be a hacker sure uh, even if like the actual yeah. technical things are like whatever no it's sort of it's sort of abstracted right it, yeah, into, yeah. into sort of a gloss that still nevertheless finds a specific feel to it and brian i think you have some background about how this book came to be yeah right? yeah so william gibson grew up in the american south he was born in 1948 very strange story his dad choked to death at a restaurant when he was a kid oh that's, shit uh, what yeah what <laughs> while he was like on a business he was like a salesman he they moved around a lot and he was on a business trip and was at a restaurant and and just fucking died and that sounds like a fake background story yeah, it really like does. Tumblr post. like yeah, it's it, like well like yeah it's my, like he's my baby girl like you don't even like know what he went through as a child and it's like justin bieber or some shit yeah. but, <laughs> but like yes yeah, it's, it's very very weird so there was a lot of moving around he was in the appalachians most of this time and found a lot of, I guess, solace in reading science fiction. He was a big fan of science fiction. He kind of didn't care about church or school or anything else. He, he didn't even actually graduate high school until he was 21. And, and it, science fiction was his life. That was like the thing that he did was just went to his room and read sci-fi stories. When he was an adult, the Vietnam War rolled around. And he decided that he was going to dodge the draft by moving to Canada. He he never actually got drafted. He mostly just said he dodged the draft to get pussy. Uh, <laughs> just getting some Canadian strange. So much of this makes so much sense. He's a true just like hippie. Apparently Fucking he, horn dog. He, yeah, worked, he worked in Toronto's first like head shop selling, you know, bombs. So, so then at some point he starts, you know, he starts writing, he stays in Canada. I think he still lives in Canada and, and he starts writing stories and then he starts writing stories that all kind of take place in this techno futuristic world called the sprawl. Um, So he writes Burning Chrome, which is a short story. And he wrote Johnny Mnemonic in the first couple of years of the 80s. Great pinball machine. Classic pinball machine. Johnny Mnemonic. Uh, much better than the movie. <laughs> interesting movie. Interesting movie. There's also the the like 90s FMV game based on not Johnny Mnemonic, which is oh. also like oh, any FMV sounds, game. That terrible. actually sounds interesting. It's interesting I, and very bad. Yeah, no, like that's that's the thing with FMVs. They're either like surprisingly really good yeah. and no one has ever heard of them, <laughs> or they're really popular and also extremely bad. And Listen, I love I, both of them. Like I will yes, defend Mad all, Dog all McCree until my. <laughs> dying fucking day that game is so funny um so he was part of this like hippie movement in sci-fi that started in the 60s and included people like philip dick and harlan ellison and jg ballard who were making a new wave of science fiction they looked at joseph campbell's 1949 book the hero with a thousand faces and they're like this shit sucks we hate doing this 
And this is at a time where science fiction is becoming increasingly mainstream, right? And then by the time we get to the late 70s, George Lucas makes Star Wars based off of the hero with a thousand faces. Right. And now it's like sci-fi is not even a genre anymore. It's just everything. Yeah, like, it's just pop culture. Yeah, that's every, sci-fi. Like, and so they were tr- what, what it seems like is that the new wave of sci-fi was trying to make sci-fi that was still its own distinctive thing, separate from all this mainstream stuff and separate from the, the really like right wing aspect yeah. of a lot of hard sci-fi. I still don't get where that came from. Like, how are yeah. you going to make a thing like about imagining a better future or whatever or a worse future with like yeah. a take and your take is like, we need we need things to be bad, actually. Yeah. I don't know, like right-wing art just generally confuses me so much. <laughs> yeah. Especially when it like t- protrudes into entire show race. It's just, I don't get it. I think part of it is that the United States got to the moon. And the United right. States is a very right-wing com- country, and it got to, so like, being achieve... Fu- so yeah. thinking of futurism became a right-wing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and, 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 and very, you know, anti-Soviet, anti-communist, you know, and it's yeah. like, we we did it, we're the first, we're going to keep... Right. Like the Western, we're going to keep mm. expanding into the stars like we expanded into the West and, and killing and subjugating as much as possible. Well, we've talked about this stuff in the past, too, like with our uh, The Last of Us episode, right? Yeah. The Last of Us, and especially The Last of Us, too that these are narratives that are extremely reactionary, that they, yeah. they exist sort of to show that a hierarchy or an order is inherently necessary to ensure like a so-called civilized society. Yeah. And it'll be interesting when we get into talking about the plot of Neuromancer a little bit to get into its politics or yeah. maybe more accurately, it's anti-politics because I'm not sure that it comes down on either side of I this. Yeah. I don't think this book has politics. Yeah. It's just very, it's just very explicitly doesn't have politics. Well, well yeah, right. I learned that, that Gibson was good friends with uh, Timothy Leary and that's like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. That's the guy who said, uh, turn on tune in dropout. He was the right, psychologist right, of the right. beat generation who really right. also had no politics at all. He was all about the zeitgeist and it's all yeah, aesthetics. No, like, I, I find it interesting how this is a cyberpunk fic, uh, book that defines the genre that manages to be more horny than political. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can also trace a line from that guy forward to the the many Bay Area tech communes and sort of the, the 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 capitalist anarchist strain of thought that enabled the development of companies like Apple and, you know, everything else. Right. We have to remember, too, like this this book comes out in 1984. This is the same year that the first Macintosh comes yeah. out. So yeah. speaking of Apple. Yeah. So personal computing is very much barely a thing. Uh, and at this point, graphical interfaces are still very, very new. And the Apple Lisa was not successful. The Macintosh was. And so it was like it wasn't really a thing that people were thinking of having a computer in their home quite at the time. With that said, though, the idea of navigating through a computer as three dimensional space was not a new idea. Mm-mm. In fact, Tron had come out a couple years yeah. earlier in 1982. So I just wanted to point that out as well, that like there's there's new elements to do with personal computing and so on. But it's also, in, to an extent, playing in spaces that have already been defined yeah. Yeah. 
in pop culture in a meaningful way. I find that really interesting about the introduction to this book, uh, which I don't know, I think that's, we all have the same edition, uh, which like he wrote in 2004 as an edition, right, yes, yeah. the, 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 the green one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And and, and I, fi- I find that introduction really funny that he put this before the book, where he basically says, I didn't fucking know shit about <laughs> yeah. technology. I just like made some shit up. I also don't think that channels really look like the first sentence of this book. And it's just like, <laughs> I don't know, this is like, this is interesting info. Why did you put this before the book? <laughs> He yeah he didn't he didn't touch a computer for like ten years yeah no like like it, it makes sense that his entire understanding of technology came from sci-fi you can see mm-hmm. that it's 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 not bad like this is this reads well I think the main reason this still reads well today is because all of the way he describes technology is the same way other cyberpunk media still describes technology yeah so that's right. why it doesn't seem so foreign it's just because that's a still existing trope. That he yeah. probably started as like, yeah. or solidified at least. Like I know that it, he wasn't the first one to bring this up, but I feel like Neuromancer definitely helped solidifying this concept of technology and sci-fi is like 3D and like yeah. crazy. Well, and just like people like J.G. Ballard or Philip K. Dick, his science fiction is not as interested in all of the real machinery of everything. Mm. He's interested in sort of making a surreal expression of the world as he understands it right now in 1984 as a guy without a computer. And I think that's one of the advantages like cyberpunk as a genre has. Yeah. Is that it doesn't get too lost in the technology of it. Sure. Or in describe or even envisioning it. And it's more of the like interpersonal things, the political aspects, even if there isn't that political take per se. Like this book discusses a lot of politics. It yeah. just doesn't have an opinion. So yeah. uh, <laughs> like like I, I do find that quite interesting. Like I, I think that's a good way to do sci-fi. Where like, a, I don't know, like a lot of sci-fi slop I used to read, it's just, or even just fantasy, like as well, mm-hmm. where you get way too into the mechanics of the universe, rather than like, just exploring shit in it. And I think that's the cool thing. I'm glad that we kept that from this time, even though that just came from the fact that these people didn't know how technology worked. And so there were, yeah, there were some other cyberpunk authors that came before this. Uh, there, there was the short story Cyberpunk. Which that title reference, it means like it's a person, well, hmm. probably more akin to what we would call a hacker. But they were they were they were kids. They were cyberpunks. They were in little cyber gangs. But this is really the book. What if there were good cyber gangs <laughs> <laughs> rather than these bad cyber gangs that have been just 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 a thought that I had. Yeah. And we're also getting in the 80s, at least in the US and the UK, we're getting this interest in noir again, in old crime novels, in recreating noir stories. So in movies, we get people like the Coen brothers. Their first movie is Blood Simple, which is, a, you know, classified as a neo-noir. And in science fiction, people start moving into the cyberpunk realm to tell mm-hmm. stories of criminals and heists and people, you know, operating in shady alleyways and going to darkened bars and and coming up with terrible schemes and blackmailing each other and all that. And this this book is like the locus. This is the thing that gets translated into like a hundred languages everybody knows what it is and and william gibson is still just like some guy in canada with a typewriter being like well isn't that neat (laughs) in the way that this book starts is very much in that mode right it is immediately kind of noir the first Mm -hmm. sentence the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel 
I love that sentence. Yes, it's such a good sentence, and I think it's funny that he doesn't stand by that sentence anymore. <laughs> like, based on the intro, it seems like he regrets starting it like that. Yeah, because he's like, it, no one knows what that, that channel looks like anymore. Well, it's not, just like, may, maybe not, like, if true. you don't know analog I, I television. It, no, but, but it's funny that he said in 20, 2004 that... Wait, 2004? He said that 13-year-olds wouldn't understand this, which I find really, really funny. Yeah. Because, like, I I was not 13 years old in 2004 <laughs> right, yet, right, but right. I know what a dead channel looks like. I yeah. grew up on analog television. I, I was 13 I years old in 2004. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it's evocative, right? Because it's immediately grounding. If you've seen on an analog television set sort of that that snow right where yeah. it, it it's it, it creates an image in your mind it creates a sound in your mind and mm-hmm. you're just looking up and there's nothing there but sort of a fog and a shroud and something that grounds us now in this world this is not a beautiful place this mm-hmm. is not a place that has sunlight this is not a place <laughs> that has happiness this is just purely uh, being grounded in the grime in the mire of this cyberpunk world, right? I find it really interesting. This is gonna make me sound way older than I am. <laughs> uh, for context, I am 24. Just, just putting this here for anyone who listens. And uh, but I feel like TV static is like one of my first formative memories. Mm. Uh, wow. And I'm autistic. I was a very autistic kid, mm-hmm. and I used to. I like sometimes I think I watch TV static for like an hour trying to find images in it uh, mm. and just like sitting there in front of the ter- the like not connected analog TV just really close with my face right up to it <laughs> trying to find the images in it and like touching a CRT also gives you this feeling it's yeah. just like this magical device that yeah. just yeah you can see figures forming in the, the static sometimes and it's like yeah I don't know. There's something something that I suddenly remember now that we're talking about this again. It is interesting. Like, that seems so far away, but like, no, I (laughs) I grew up on that shit. (laughs) Well, there's a very tactile nature to to analog broadcasting, right? And analog over-the-air television. And the way that it is, in fact, that the picture, what is going on in terms of the physics of the thing is that it is that snow resolving itself into an image when you are talking about a traditional analog broadcast. Yeah. And this book has what I could only describe as a very analog feel, which is interesting. This this book does feel like you're reading it from a VHS tape in a way. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) what we learn uh, in the first bit of this book is that our main character's name is Case. And Case is, oh, he's a he's a cool guy. He's a, he's a, he does like drugs and shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's not like the other boys. Um, and there's definitely there's definitely more than a little bit of self-insert going on here with Case. Right? Oh, yeah, you absolutely. can tell. Uh, like, you, you can, the, the hornier this book gets, the more you can tell that he's yes. writing about himself. It's, it's like, oh yeah, he was so cool, but he wasn't like big and strong and tough like the other guys. He was skinny, but oh, he was cool. <laughs> yeah, and everyone respects him. Yeah, that's and, like, right. He hasn't done anything in like years, but like everyone knows that he's like cool and he oh, does yeah. like game and he's he's in the best. You know, uh, he, he, walks, he walks into the bar, everybody knows his name the bartender's like hey haven't seen you around here in a little while what are you up to you know it really is in the way that this 
starts is a scene that you have seen in cyberpunk a million times. And yet this was the origination of that trope, right? Yeah. Case comes into the bar and uh, it's called the Chatsubo, which is a bar for professional expatriates. You could drink there for a week and never hear two words in Japanese. Rats was tending bar, <laughs> his prosthetic arm jerking monotonously as he filled a tray of glasses with draft Kirin. He saw Case and smiled, his teeth a webwork of East European steel and brown decay. <laughs> Case found a place at the bar between the unlikely tan on one of Lonnie Zone's whores and the crisp naval uniform of a tall African whose cheekbones were ridged with precise rows of tribal scars. Wage was in here early with two Joe boys, Rat said, shoving a draft across the bar with his good hand. Maybe some business with you, Case? Case shrugged. The girl to his right giggled and nudged him. It's got everything. It's got everything it's got you've ever all. seen in yes. every cyberpunk story, and it's in the first three paragraphs of the I'm, book. I'm also curious, actually, um, is this where the whole, like, Asian trope comes from? Where it's all, mm. like, is this, or did we get that before? I don't know Philip Dick's writing yet, but I guess that's also kind of reflected there, but, like... Yeah, I don't think it's so much of a Philip K. Dick thing, but it, in the earlier cyberpunk stories, I haven't read those, so I, I couldn't be able to yeah. say for sure if, if those... I would assume that there was there was this this uh, in in North America at least there was this this big fear that we're on top right, of the world. There was the fear of Japan because of like right. Sony yeah. and stuff. Yeah, right. yep, yep. that was like a whole thing. And that's something that a lot of a lot of sci-fi doesn't quite get into until after cyberpunk makes its footprint. Is the idea that yeah, oh, society is going to continue forward and different civilizations will be on the upswing. So you'll see maybe like African civilizations that are at the at, towards the top of the the food chain and they they still have like traditional ways you see that in um in Shadowrun series you know like native americans gather more political power mm. in that world and and especially of course the east whether that's japan yes. or china or some I combination do find it of the interesting two how that started with this thing where there is like a, a real life political ground for why it's all like japan theme yeah to where we are now where people are just like uh oh, it's cyberpunk it needs to be in japan and it's just <laughs> like it's it's so weird like yeah. Yeah, and like even here it already like I read this and was like, ah, okay, so yeah, this is cyberpunk. We are like in Japan basically more or yeah. less kinda. It's it, it immediately sets this like I feel like that's a big part of what makes this immediately read as cyberpunk. Yes, yeah. it's the yeah. fact that like the second sentence mentions people talking in Japanese for like little reason things are named in like Japanese voice and it's mm -hmm. just like yeah and I think a part of it too is that as Brian said at this point Japan was pretty much the economic powerhouse globally yeah. in terms of electronics and stuff like that right that both the design and the manufacturing side of things were happening in Japan no wonder this circuit failed it says made in Japan what do you mean doc all the best stuff is made in Japan Unbelievable. That there was this enduring American anxiety about mm -hmm. the potential collapse of our technological edge as represented by Japan. And I think it was less to do with anything specifically about Japan or Japanese society or anything like that. Yeah. And it, it was more just broadly like, oh, we don't want to get owned. And in a, <laughs> in a, in a, in a I think that in a technological dystopian future, 
One way that you can easily show shorthand for that, if you are a typical North American, is to show that America is no longer the prevailing economic yeah, powerhouse. Or, or go as far as Gibson and just make the U.S. not exist and not right. even mention it in a single sentence. Yeah, and no, I do exactly. think that is one of the coolest things he was entirely dedicated to here. That is like the most political thing he's probably done in the book that most people wouldn't realize if they didn't read the intro. Is the U.S. doesn't exist. Yeah, it, it's it doesn't even exist in like history. Like people don't bring it up. It's funny because like he's he describes this as he kind of bet on the wrong side because he knew like either the Soviet Union or the U.S. is eventually right. going to collapse, and he just assumed the U.S. wouldn't make yeah. it. Right. I, I think that's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's in the the U.S. as depicted in the world of these stories is what what you see of anything on that landmass is the sprawl or, or it's also called Bama, the Boston Atlanta metro area. And it's just yeah. like the, <laughs> the entire East coast of the United States has now become a gigantic, like governmentless city that is run entirely by like the free market anarcho capitalist uh, yeah. corporations. I mean, I do also find it interesting in like ghost in the shell and whatnot, where we also get yeah. the same trope where the U S is just like this war zone. Uh, yeah. like, in, in the, like that I find actually one of the most interesting like topics in the like Netflix series of, uh, of Ghost in the Shell. I don't know if either of you have seen it. It's, no, uh, like I didn't the, even know there was the one. SAC 2045. It's, okay. it's 3D animation, the animation I kind of uh, hate. I just yeah. watched it because I needed to watch every piece of Ghost in the Shell media <laughs> to ever exist. Sure. I like the plot of it. Uh, and it has this whole idea where the US introduced... Uh, like the US still exists there as like a government, but their whole economy is built on their constantly being war within their country. <laughs> oh, sustainable <laughs> war is like sustainable yes. Oh, I like that. So yes, in SSC really twenty forty five, like uh the US economy and like also the world economy. Uh, and AI at one point decided they're gonna do the great economic reset, uh deleted like all currency and all debt and everything. <laughs> and from then on the economy was gonna work on sustainable war, which is <laughs> the idea that there needs to be constantly war happening for the economy to work and it's kind of like why I actually like this Netflix series despite yeah. the visuals being fucking shit uh, you get used to them it's yeah. like watchable uh, <laughs> it, it's the fact that they like yeah the US is like just this war zone and that's like how the economy works. I just brought that up because it does link back into like this trope Neuromancer starts yeah. where the US per se doesn't exist anymore but it's this lawless land with an economy based on crime basically. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> William Gibson is less interested in sort of the, the macro connection between these governmental or, or market forces. Mm -hmm. He's a lot more interested in what does it look like for a guy who is in this situation. Yeah. And of course, in this book, our guy is, as I was saying, Case, right? And Case, uh, at this bar, you know, he talks to the bartender and he's like, oh, Case, you're out doing your thing again. And uh, he, Case, his whole reason to exist is to basically do crimes, right? Yeah. Uh, he is all about having sex and doing crimes in no particular order. <laughs> maybe and even sex crimes. Who knows? Maybe. We don't maybe. know. Uh, <laughs> that would bring... That, well, that, I mean, that's all, unfortunately, also a very common trope in cyberpunk. It's an open yeah. question. It's not explicitly portrayed here, but it's not explicitly ruled yeah. out either. Um, but basically, Case, his shit has been really fucked up for a while because at one point, he made the mistake as a hacker of stealing from his employer. 
He'd made a classic mistake, the one he'd sworn he'd never make. He stole from his employers. He kept something for himself and tried to move it through a fence in Amsterdam. He still wasn't sure how he'd been discovered, not that it mattered now. He'd expected to die then, but they only smiled. Of course he was welcome, they told him. Welcome to the money. And he was going to need it, because, still smiling, they were going to make sure he never burked again. <laughs> they damaged his nervous system with a wartime Russian mycotoxin. That, that I got that first that's try great. Crazy. Yeah, well done, well done. <laughs> so, I can't say heat, but mycotoxin, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, strapped to a bed in a Memphis hotel, his town burning up micron by micron, he hallucinated for 30 hours. The damage was minute, subtle, and utterly effective. For Case, who'd lived for the bodiless exaltation of cyberspace, it was to fall. In the bars he'd frequented as a cowboy hotshot, the elite stance involved a certain relaxed contempt for the flesh. The body was meat. Case fell into the prison of his own flesh. And so here we get something that is a, also a recurring theme throughout this book, which is the idea of the body as meat yeah. uh, that can be readily modified, augmented, uh, and changed, but as more of a, um, I don't know, an appendage to the true self, right? Mm. That the true self is that which can also exist in cyberspace, which we'll talk about in a little bit, that the meat is almost an inhibitor to the true self, right? Yeah, the, the thing I do think is interesting about that specific trope, which is introduced there very early in the book, uh, is... That this like stays throughout the book in case thoughts. He keeps talking about like the flesh being worse yeah. and not mm -hmm. worth anything. And I think it's interesting because I'm not sure if that's like actually a thing in this uh society or just him. Yeah. Because because mm. We only ever he's the only person who ever really talks about like being in cyberspace. Everyone kinda makes fun of him like molly later on is like yeah dude fuck off i guess mm. you're a weird nerd in some way mm -hmm. whenever he does like cyberspace shit i think this might just be his worldview and i i do find it interesting how it's never really resolved whether like everyone thinks like that because yeah. i think that like main thing here is that basically no one like can operate decks beyond like these cowboys and whatnot yeah it leaves the question open-ended a little bit because you know one thing that we do frequently see is people who have performed some sort of body uh, hmm. modification or augmentation of some sort. Oh, and different absolutely. people do it for different reasons. You know, so a lot of people will get work to uh, avoid the aging process. People will get augmentations to be stronger, whatever. But I think you're right that it, it, we never hear from those people explicitly about why they do it. We just hear that yeah. they have done it. I, I think like a lot of people are getting augmentation and stuff. Like the body is definitely like this mutable thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm just not sure about like the whole idea of like the cyberspace self is more important because yeah, mm -hmm. like that's yeah, it very is, it is clearly case, but it opinion. might not be right. But it might right. not be the societal standard. I do find it interesting how much like the theme of like not wanting to age happens mm -hmm. here and yeah. I, I like i don't know judging this book so far a lot of this reflects gibson's like personal thoughts like this is very much just like him dumping his thoughts in in the style of like all the books he read when he was like 14 yeah uh, so yeah i do also wonder wh whether this is him trying to reflect on his like relationship with aging and brian you said he was born in 1948 and this yeah. came out in 84 so that would make him what 36 at the time if mental math serves yeah it's so yeah. like, yeah, he's he's a baby boomer and, and the, the counterculture, especially of the baby boomer generation was all about youth. It was the youth yeah. culture. Mm -hmm. 
And part of, I think, him looking at computers and looking at hacking and phone freaking and whatever else he was he was aware of is he sees, oh, this is a new generation of young people. Oh, my fucking God, I'm so fucking old. (laughs) (laughs) You can definitely tell that he feels old. Like, you can... He doesn't. He wants to be a part of this. Like, like that's yeah. much of like the whole self-insert character of case, which I th- I think we can just call it that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's oh, just, for sure. Just, for sure. He just wants to be a part of the game, which I think is also interesting with the specific excerpt we heard uh, of like, yeah, him losing the powers. Like a big part of this book, at least for the first like quarter or so, maybe less, is is about the guy who has all these hacking powers not actually mm-hmm. having these and struggling and trying to get by. And I think that's also just about his experience trying to fit in with these cool oh, people for who sure. do technology. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, it, well, because he, he, I mean, you know, it, after we get this introduction to Case, we have a series of scenes in which he's basically hustling, right? Mm-hmm. He yeah. he gets some he gets some hot RAM uh, and he <laughs> needs to go and find somebody who can sell it to. But he finds that there's somebody who's on his tail and we get these sequences in which he is running away. He, you know, runs through an arcade and jumps out the back window, goes back to the hotel that he stays in, which in this world is just a series of coffins that you sleep in, I guess. It's like Uh, capsule hotels. I'm pretty sure this is actually inspired by like Japan starting to have like Mm -hmm. capsule hotels and stuff at the time. And it was like, this is going to be a thing everywhere. It's just an interesting (laughs) turn of phrase that they specifically call them coffins. Yeah. It took me so uh, long to realize what they were talking about. <laughs> and uh, Case gets back to his coffin, and would you know it? Somebody else is in there. Blah! <laughs> who's the? Who's this? And, like he thinks it's like his girl at the time. They're always right. just girls. They're not girlfriends. They're just yeah. girls. Yes, he uh, thinks which... it's his girl Linda Lee, but it's not Linda Lee. It's oh. somebody else. Molly. Molly. Oh. Who has who had previously appeared in Johnny Mnemonic as a character. And uh Molly is I, I don't know, how would we describe her? Like she's 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 the cool girl, obviously, and <laughs> physically we know that her body is very, very nice. Yeah. And William Gibson <laughs> <Wait>. wastes <laughs> no sw- small amount of ink on that. Um yeah. it's it's definitely um I, I, I hate to say this, but William Gibson gets into the category of male writers. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I don't think I need to say more, but like, nope. yeah. Uh, he, he would say that she breasted boobily down yes. the stairs. Yes, yes. The, the sheer number of times that he's like, and her breasts were... Yeah, no, like <laughs> whatever. Gibson's a boobs man. Like that much is clear oh, from this absolutely. book. Absolutely. No, like um yeah, I don't think her ass is mentioned a single time in this. <laughs> no. But her boobs come up like every other page as soon as she's introduced. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like how, how do we find her as a character? I think she's cool. Uh but I guess she's like written to be cool. I don't think it's really like I, I feel like it. It's hard to not find her cool just because she's very explicitly written to be the cool one. She, she's, you know, she's a she's a killer. She's slick. She gets in. She gets out. She does some murder. She's got these things over her eyes. He never sees her eyes, and that's like a really big point as well. I think he might also right. be an eyes guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's definitely an eyes guy. Eyes, eyes are the boobs of the face. You know. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, he he does spend a surprising amount of time in this book talking about how her eyes are covered and how he fucking wants to see those eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's really interesting. Like, bro, you made yourself that hurt a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think there's this idea that he wants to, Gibson wants to 
preserve a certain mystery to the character of Molly, right? Yeah. Because for Case, he he doesn't ever quite know what it is that her full deal is. And she is intentionally this way, right? She doesn't want him to know what her full deal is. And so mm-hmm. what we know about Molly is that she's cool. Mm-hmm. She's that hot. She, that she's hot and that she is here to help Case get his shit back together. I think that her like razor hands are already introduced at the very mm-hmm. start. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. because she does also have this body mod. Like she has two. Like she has her eye thing. Right. Uh, and she also has like retractable razor things in her fingers. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, is like I don't know. It's like the hottest way he could have made her a killer. It, I mean what it is is it's basically again it's Adam Jensen's arms except that rather than having the things on the arms yeah. she has them under her fingers. Yeah. And there is something interesting about the continuity between this and Deus Ex, the newer Deus Ex games. And I, I was thinking about that a lot. And I was just thinking yeah. about, in general, the continuity between this and video games. That you've got, like, these cool, stealthy assassin characters. And that's just such a trope now. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that it was that way as much at the point that no, this book was really. written. I, I think like the thing the thing that always kept coming up for me was that 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 she is kind of like Motoko from from Ghost in the Shell and and just the sense that she's a she's a cool woman character in yeah. Cyberpunk yeah which like yes that comes up but like to be an actual important character in this it's it's still honestly surprisingly not much of a thing like it's important that there's always a dude which yeah. like that's still the thing i find there's so interesting be a about dude. ghost in the shell is that we have actually a female main character that's yeah, still, right, like right. what the more cyberpunk i consume the more i'm surprised by this also like considering which time ghost in the shell came from like mm-hmm. not that she's not sexualized or anything she yeah, for sure. absolutely <laughs> is but like still it's like yeah and i think in a way like molly is more of a main character than i think even gibson himself realized like, i agree yeah. she for for all of the side characters she's somehow so important to this plot in a way no other character is mm. beyond case and we'll talk about that later on because it becomes increasingly core to the book's narrative especially mm. in like the back third for now Molly exists as the way to sort of move Case's story forward, which happens because Molly breasts boobly up the stairs uh, to to bring Case to an ex-military guy named Armitage. Yeah. This Armitage guy was involved in something called Screaming Fist, which I guess was Do this you like... a cool operation yeah. name? In oh, your it's so cool. It's like a military op that was over the Soviet Union that basically failed, but... Armitage came away with sort of better knowledge of how all this cyber shit works. And he's got some sort of a personal mission in mind. And that mission involves recruiting Case because Case is the coolest hacker that the world has ever known, right? (laughs) Obviously. I mean, he's the main character of this book. (laughs) And so basically the, the, the gist of it is, you know, one more big score, right? If Case can secure the MacGuffin, then they can fix Case's, like, mental illness that exists as a result of the torture that his previous employer did to him. What would you say if I told you we could correct your neural damage, Case? Armitage suddenly looked to Case as if he were carved from a block of metal, inert, enormously heavy, a statue. He knew now that this was a dream and that soon he'd wake. Armitage wouldn't speak again. Case's dreams always ended in these freeze frames, and now this one was over. 
what would you say, Case? <laughs> Case looked out over the bay and shivered. I'd say you were full of shit. Get him! Get him! <laughs> I, I like this line so much because I, while reading this book, I was okay. This is kind of a shout out, but like while reading this book, I was also watching a lot of the Snapcube Sonic fan dubs, and I was just like, this just sounds like something Sonic would yeah. say in that dub. I'd or say like, you were full of shit. <laughs> Eggman, um, you're full of shit, Eggman. <laughs> but the thing is, this is not just a dream. This no. is real. Yeah. Uh, Armitage is going to be able to get Case's body back to the way that it was. And so Case agrees to do the deal. Not that he really has that much of a choice, honestly. He goes back to his hotel where he immediately fucks Molly. Yeah, no, no, Molly more accurately Molly fucks him. Molly fucks him. And Molly is like, don't worry, I can see in the dark. And that's the funniest <laughs> shit anyone has ever written during any sex scene. My it's vision like, is augmented. I, like, like, I, like I, I just read the start of the scene. I was like, okay, they're just gonna fuck for like no reason. And then it, uh, it goes on and he's like, whoa, it's so dark. And like, where are you? And then she's like, whoa, don't worry, I can see. And she guides his hands and shit. And it's like, he's so clear. Like, at that, that was the point where it came so clear that this is a self-insert and he wants oh, to yeah. fuck Molly from his previous short story. Like, <laughs> well, it's all, now that you're saying that she appeared previously, it makes so much yeah. sense why she's in this one where he has a self-insert. It's also like, uh, you know, th that he, again, it's Gibson's very clear, like, kinks. Like, yeah. he wants to have sex with a hot lady in complete pitch black. Right, yeah. like that. And that's, she guides him, and she does the. Yeah, like, he wants uh, her to be able to kill him. Respectable to be into that, but yeah. also, th at this point, it doesn't make sense for them to be <laughs> fucking. No, why does she fuck him? No, There's like, no, like she doesn't have a reason to. Is it? Like, is it just because I, she wants to get him under under her thumb a little bit? I don't. I don't know. Like I don't get it. Like the scene really starts with him being like, "Oh, but why are you here?" And she's like, "Ooh, I'll show you." And then she like writes him and it's just like huh? it reminds me of Dade's dream in Hackers when Angelina yes, yeah. Jolie like runs in and rips off her shirt and jumps on top of him you know yeah absolutely but it's just like but it's real there. it's not a dream yeah. <laughs> no like like it was the point where I was like yeah this is just written like a fanfic in a way it's oh just, yeah it's just he's just good at writing but like this is like a good fanfic writer could have written this entire book Oh like, yeah. <laughs> well, and especially now that uh, I, I discovered the other day, this is like the my immortal of cyberpunk. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> I discovered the other day that we have now inspired a fanfic on Ao3, not of us, uh, but <laughs> That's true, of yeah. uh, characters from Adventures in Odyssey. Uh, <laughs> so I don't remember what it's called, but I went and found it, and I was simultaneously horrified and impressed by it uh good slash bad job listener if you were the one who made that um i hate and love you so th there's a couple other pieces that we pick up along the way here plot wise we learn that case's ex-girlfriend linda lee is is now dead uh somebody tracked her down and murked her and so we move from Japan back to the Boston Atlanta metropolitan axis, the previously mentioned Bama. Home. Home was Bama, the sprawl, the Boston Atlanta metropolitan axis. Program a map to display frequency of data exchange every thousand megabytes a single pixel on a very large screen. Manhattan and Atlanta burn solid white. Then they start to pulse, the rate of traffic threatening to overload your simulation. Your map is about to go Nova. 
Cool it down, up your scale, each pixel a million megabytes. At 100 million megabytes per second, you begin to make out certain blocks in midtown Manhattan. Outlines of hundred-year-old industrial parks bringing the old core of Atlanta. That's so much data. Yeah. <laughs> 100 million megabytes? Surely we will never transmit that much data. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how little data this really is. I, I, I don't oh, yeah. think he quite understands what a pixel is, but you know what? His heart's in the right place. <laughs> no, like, I found this really funny to read because it was like really visual and he was like, yeah, yeah. it's like good writing, but also he has no fucking clue what he's talking <laughs> yeah. about. Like, like it, it doesn't distract from the writing like i can read this and it's cool and like yeah, yeah. but it's also like yeah no like you could ha ha has he heard of the concept of research that's yeah that is but something i asked myself at numerous <laughs> points in this book it's like also when he talks about weapons as well it's like a lot of it is like yeah no bro does not like doing research yeah, yeah like have you ever actually fired a gun like in real life i don't think so <laughs> i mean yeah no he didn't he dodged the draft really yeah, yeah, right, he was a real hero and dodged the draft and <laughs> there is this really interesting prediction of like how cities are going to look in the future sort of by accident because from that point until now we've pivoted so much away from sodium street lamps to leds and oh, so yeah. everything has gone from like orange to like a blue to a white generally he's like surprisingly good at predictions especially about all the things he doesn't know anything <laughs> <Yeah>. about <laughs> which like no like I, I do have to say this is an impressive book and it's impressive that it held up so well like I read this and it was like it doesn't feel wrong that they don't have mobile phones it doesn't yeah. feel wrong that no one knows how to use a computer it's just like yeah, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, no, he, like, I, in a lot of ways, I do feel like him not researching really worked in his favor, like, yeah. in the same mm -hmm. way I said before. Like, I feel like if he knew more about things, he would have focused too hard on them being right. Exactly. Yeah. He's more interested in, like, images and mm -hmm. vibes than lore. And he's good at that. Like, he's yes. so good at building vibes. Like, you can read this and you could, it's a very visual book. Oh, yeah. And, like, and, and even, even if you don't know what is going on, which will happen, by the way, frequently. Um, <laughs> like, you'll, like, you'll reread, like, wait, what just happened? He, it, he does still love doing the thing where he, suddenly there's this entire, like, three-page section where every sentence contains a word you've never heard absolutely. before. And absolutely. It's like, yeah, I have no idea what's going on, but this looks cool. But it's cool, because, because like, whatever is going on, you can visualize more or less in your head, and so there's a, a way that you can see it and feel it. And, and, and one great example of that, actually, is what happens when Case jacks into cyberspace for the yes. first time. So just to frame this up here, Case is now fully like in his job. And, uh, you know, he, he had the thing fixed from before. But bad news. Now he's got toxic sacks in his body. So he's on another timer. So <laughs> cyberspace is where Case is an expert. What he's able to do is hook up these trodes to his forehead and his brain 
integrates with this digital layer that exists sort of parallel to and also on top of the real world. Also, we, we, we just have to say that, like, I don't know I, if people listen to this in a year and Neuralink by Elon Musk has been really <sighs> successful yeah. somehow. <laughs> it won't be. We don't it, know. Maybe it's, cyberspace it's looks just gonna like kill this kill people. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> if we sound stupid saying that this isn't how things work. Then... <laughs> 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 no, okay, uh, I, I just to make it clear, I have no belief in any of that working. No. Elon god, Musk no. is just gonna accidentally kill himself and it's gonna be really uh, funny. Please, God. So cyberspace in this book is described accordingly. Cyberspace. A consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions of legitimate operators in every nation. By children being taught mathematical concepts. A graphic representation of data abstracted from the banks of every computer in the human system. Unthinkable complexity. Lines of light ranged in the non-space of the mind. Clusters and constellations of data, like city lights receding. So that's uh, that's cyberspace, uh, <laughs> as as apparently narrated in a children's television program, yeah. according to the internal lore of the book. Obviously, cyberspace is a term that we still all use now. And generally speaking, we just use it in the context of, you know, getting online. But in this book, cyberspace means something very specific and a little bit different from sort of what cyberspace is in the common parlance. Yes. It's OK, if you've seen The Matrix, you can imagine it in a sense. It's like you see cities, but it's like just. Cities of Light. I, it's honestly, honestly, the thing that came to mind immediately is Hacker's opening sequence. Uh -huh, yeah, uh -huh. and, and, and the ending. And, and the yeah. ending, yes. The, like, hacking sequences and stuff. It's like servers are, like, these big lights on the horizon and you can... Uh, move there and you like tell your computer via voice input which coordinates you want to go to and it, it's kind of cool like yeah. I don't know like I do think like like it's the thing the thing about how cyberpunk imagines technology works it's always the most impractical shit imaginable yeah. <laughs> but also it's so incredibly cool once the internet becomes a widespread thing especially on home computers it's far simpler than that we're just opening up pages of things or, yeah, or watching which videos is way more practical yeah what william gibson <laughs> predicted though has now become a reality thanks to web3 Yes, <laughs> Which, and, and, right. and it sucks even more yeah. than yeah. William Gibson ever could have predicted. We are actually uh, doing this podcast right now in the metaverse, and it's like we're all mm -hmm. in the same room together. Yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> uh, all of us have legs. Yeah, yeah and we're like glowing. Yeah, um, <laughs> this is being conducted entirely in Roblox. Yeah, you're, you're going to do the next episode in Fortnite yeah. instead, <laughs> and there will just be random pop songs playing in between. Uh, but do not worry about it. It, it is interesting. <laughs> to me though this idea of like a space in which the human imagination and the human brain and in the connected power of all of humanity's brains hmm. build this simultaneous virtual space right yeah in some ways i do feel like this is the dream that, as we were saying, like fucking Elon Musk wants to achieve. But I think this book then also touches on why that's a bad idea. Again, yeah. With like, uh, which, which I do find interesting that there is like actual nuance in this book. It sometimes surprised me when there was yeah. suddenly like some nuance happening. Uh, like just generally the idea of like, yeah, being able to like actually plug in and be completely immersed in this world. It will make so much shit like easier. It will make it easier to 
like interact with things because it would be natural like you would yeah. be like moving your body i think it's interesting though that they depict this world where you both have this brain computer interface but also while being in that you still need to give voice commands to your computer to do shit <laughs> and i think it's really funny how probably accidentally william gibson and uh like in- envision technology like it is nowadays where it's this weird imperfect mess of dumb shit that's just this <laughs> yeah. way because of companies yeah uh, which then later on comes on as well which i think that this is a concept that i find really funny because i don't think he thought about this until the last few chapters where it's suddenly relevant that his throats have this specific interface that only works with hitachi yeah and you yeah. need adapters yeah. and there's a poor and- compatibility <laughs> issue yes and i think it's interesting that this very explicitly does not come up in this book until the last three chapters yeah and yeah I don't think he came up with this idea before that. Uh, yeah, yeah, he just like so, was like, wait, what if there was an issue between different brands? <laughs> like, well, because he talks, he knows a thing or two about cameras, because you can see when he's talking about people's augmentations, they'll have like Nikon or Zeiss yeah, icon yeah. lenses in their eyes, right, things yeah. like that. So he's like, you know, I bought a lens once, but it was a it was a, a Canon lens, and I tried to put it on my Nikon camera, and it didn't fit. Yeah, <laughs> potentially he also read about like computers like in this era where yeah. there was even more like different, completely. <laughs> compatible oh, yeah. systems like things might be ibm pc compatible but the oh, yeah. things between these devices that are ibm pc compatible still weren't compatible so like i don't know i think he like had a good grasp on like that probably at least at some point while writing this he might have done some research yeah. and found that out <laughs> so i have here a description of what it actually looks like the first time in this book that Case manages to jack into cyberspace. He closed his eyes, found the ridged face of the power stud, and in the bloodlit dark behind his eyes, silver phosphines boiling in from the edge of space, hypnagogic images jerking past him like film compiled from random frames, symbols, figures, faces, a blurred, fragmented mandala of visual information. Please, he prayed. Now, a gray disc, the color of Chiba sky. Now, disc beginning to rotate, faster, becoming a sphere of paler gray, expanding, and flowed, flowered for him, fluid neon origami trick, the unfolding of his distanceless home, his country, transparent 3D chessboard extending to infinity, inner eye opening to the stepped scarlet pyramid of the eastern seaboard fission authority burning beyond the green cubes of Mitsubishi Bank of America, and high and very far away he saw the spiral arms of military systems forever beyond his reach. And somewhere, he was laughing. In a white painted loft, distant fingers caressing the deck, Tears of release streaking his face. So to me, this is when this book is at its absolute best. Yeah. Yes. There are there are there and, and we've we've already talked about how some of the writing is gets all the way to downright corny. But this right it's here, so this good. is the good shit. Yeah. It's so visual, it's so good. Like you can just see this forming in front of your eyes as you yep. read this. These are like the pages I turned the quickest is like in these sections. And I'm so glad there is more and more of this as the book goes on. It's definitely not the most fast starting book. He really is doing his best to write from the perspective of someone who lives in this world. 
who like can only understand a gray sky because it looks like TV, who understands what certain buildings look like because it's the Mitsubishi Bank of America, you know, keeping the brands and and every like everyone's Mm. sort of locked down. They don't have this expansive uh, view of the world that you might have watching it from the moon or something. You are you are locked into whatever life that you have had and you're using the the points of reference that you have at your disposal. Yeah. I think this also like shows again how much of like his view of the world, like the world we live in, comes through the lens of having read way too much sci-fi. Yeah. Like this is this is kind of how he views the world. Like he views it through like explaining it to himself in these ways and i think i think that's nice like that makes him a good writer for sci-fi is that he hasn't ever really known anything but the lens of sci-fi yeah and and like that's why like i don't know like all the brand names he mentions are actual brands that are relevant at this time (laughs) and it like shows so much of like where he does research is the things he knows from sci-fi and it's like the things that stick out to him when he goes through everyday life and i think that's what you can really see in these passages. And sort of to another point too, Mai, about where you're saying about how like you can see it unfolding, you know, in front of you. One complaint that people have about this book that is not one that I agree with, but I, I do want to throw it out there, is that like there's not enough visual information about for instance, what does the Bank of Mitsubishi of America building look like? Yeah. It's like, I don't care. Yeah. I don't need to know what it looks like to be able to mm. picture it because I can feel what it looks like. I, f- I feel like a lot of that, like, I feel like this book wouldn't be as visual if I hadn't seen as much cyberpunk TV before, sure. as much sure. cyberpunk films. I feel like a lot of this book makes sense if you know sci-fi, which, like, as I said, like, it's, it shows that he knows sci-fi. That's, like, the mm-hmm. one thing he knows. What, what, what was most striking to me about this prose in this book was I was expecting to pick this up and it was going to basically be, like, Clockwork Orange. It was just going to be, like, they were going to throw a million pieces of slang at me. You know, ooh, Cyber's coming down with the Johnny boys, flipping on the, the drink drink drop, drippity, doobity doo doo. And I was like, oh, this is going to be fucking just like impossible to read. But like, because that's like, that's the stereotype you get. That's the, that's the, the mm. joke that you get of cyberpunk is like someone just getting really in the weeds on all of this weird stuff. Sort of like with fantasy and people getting like too into like rules for magic, like Brandon Sanderson <laughs> or something. Uh, and, and instead, I, I think it's very concise. It's a very like yeah. plain, it, it doesn't even lean too far into like the noir, like really trying to be super stylized. Like he just has a story to tell when yeah. he tells it. Yeah. He's actually yeah. very economic with it. Maybe a little too economic because yeah. sometimes it's just like, oh, we're in space now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> do you know how we got into space? Do you know why we got into space? No, we're in space now, though. No, like, yeah, his locations, which is just to show that this is an international world, were really funny. Yeah. Because yeah. I, to this, they do not really understand why they switched locations so often. Yeah. <laughs> like, the one to space and the very end starts to make sense of why they did it. I feel like he's playing too hard into the thing that Case doesn't have info. Uh, oh like, yeah, because Case does gets barely any info from Armitage, right, right. and I think uh, Gibson plays a little too hard into that, and also leaves the reader completely out, and we end up having even less info than Case has. <laughs> uh, and like, I guess there's so, like some uh, the thing I find interesting about how Case sees all of these location switches is that it seems as if Case was on drugs. 
But at this yeah. point, he's not capable of being on drugs. Right, uh, right, right, right. That was part of the surgery that he gets yes, from Armitage's and people. Suddenly, in the end of the book, where he's actually back on drugs, it's like the most lucid he's ever been, which I guess <laughs> makes sense. Like, he, he is experiencing withdrawal. He's, like, in this weird in-between state. But also, it's it's weird how time for him moves faster when he's not on stimulants. And when he's yeah. on stimulants, it's like, that is not my experience of someone who has <laughs> abused stimulants before like, yeah no it's it's something yeah no speaking of somebody with a severe caffeine addiction uh who cannot function without said stimulant and i'm uh, that's that's a very legal stimulant by the way yeah. and <laughs> the legal stimulants are the only ones that i'm going to talk about on this podcast um so hello fbi <laughs> hello hello My the bad. sorry for bringing them back here yeah it's again. all right <laughs> listen listen feds we know you we love you give us five bucks um so uh, uh, <laughs> the other thing that we learn about here from the, the cyberspace bit is this idea of stim 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 in this world is a component of cyberspace where you are able to use your deck, which is the thing that you interface with uh, between the real world and cyberspace to basically get inside of somebody else's body. If somebody else is broadcasting a stim stim signal, you are able to then experience what they are experiencing through cyberspace. So the thing that StimStim is able to do narratively is it's able to show us what is happening to Molly through Case's eyes. Because again, from a narrative perspective, although this is third person narration, it never leaves Case's perspective. Mm -hmm. You never see what is going on outside of his world. His interiority is entirely constrained to what you are seeing through this narrative. And so when we get the Stim Stim situation, he's able to follow along with Molly. This is going to allow us to track what she's doing, because generally the way that the structure of this book is once they get up and running is that Case is going to be in cyberspace hacking and Molly is going to be in meat space infiltrating like killing and, and infiltration yeah, and cool shit. spy and, shit and, right and, and and touching her nipples and touching her nipple in. absolutely this is, absolutely I still, <laughs> still this is this is the most revealing bit of why he gets to why he's specifically connected to molly and okay uh, yeah I, I i like i'm not even gonna i, I don't even have a capacity to kink shame here but <laughs> this is absolutely another one of folio it's Gibson's so funny kinks. i'm gonna like, i'm gonna read I'm just going to read a little bit here again. Um, then he keyed the new switch, the abrupt jolt into other flesh. Matrix gone, a wave of sound and color. She was moving through a crowded street, past stalls, vending discount software, prices felt penned on sheets of plastic, fragments of music from countless speakers, smells of urine, free monomers, perfume, patties of frying krill. For a few frightened seconds, he fought helplessly to control her body. Then he willed himself into passivity, became the passenger behind her eyes. Oh boy. The glasses didn't seem to cut down the sunlight at all. He wondered if the built-in amps compensated automatically. Blue alphanumerics winked the time low in her left peripheral field. Showing off, he thought. Her body language was disorienting, her style foreign. She seemed continually on the verge of colliding with someone, but people melted out of her way, stepped sideways, made room. How you doing, Case? He heard the words and felt her form them. She slid a hand into her jacket, a fingertip circling a nipple under warm silk. The sensation made him catch his breath. She laughed, but the link was one way. He had no way to reply. It's it's so absolutely him like having a kink. Yeah, it's and, awesome. Like, it's a very it's a very respectable kink and like. 
Oh, super yeah, duper. No, like, yeah. It's it's like it's cool shit. Like it's it, it's just really funny how much of this book, even when he's doing narrative, is still very clearly him just wanting yeah. to fuck Molly so bad. I hope he knows about vacuum suits. Like like that would be a oh, that would be yeah. a real big deal for him if he doesn't know already. Yeah, Gibson, if you're listening to this episode, like <laughs> us up, we can Will, we can like give you Bill, cool my buddy. <laughs> I know a latex shop in Vancouver, you're gonna be very well taken care of. <laughs> <laughs> so that is what we will see throughout this book, although uh, not always as horny as this yeah. when we are sort of seeing things it's, that it's Molly like is the doing. It's time he was this explicitly horny. Exactly. Yeah. Every time he does like switch to her, he does mention her boobs, uh, but yes. like that, yes. that, that is just, that's just, I don't know. Like, I, I do think it's interesting how much it fits Case's characters as well as being very clearly yeah, like yeah. him writing about like his the things he wants to see. In terms of though what Case sees, because he is continuously flipping sort of between the real world, Molly's stim stim ship, and his own sort of experience in cyberspace. I, I want to talk a little bit about how hacking feels in this book because this is really the core of like what you will probably remember from reading this book is these descriptions. He flipped back. His program had reached the fifth gate. He watched as his icebreaker stroked and shifted in front of him, only faintly aware of his hands playing across the deck, making minor adjustments. Translucent planes of color shuffled like a trick deck. Take a card, he thought. Any card. The gate blurred past. He laughed. The SenseNet eyes had accepted his entry as a routine transfer from the consortium's Los Angeles complex. He was inside. Behind him, viral sub-programs peeled off, meshing with the gate's code fabric, ready to deflect the real Los Angeles data when it arrived. So this is one example of what these hacking sequences look like. And, and you can sort of hear from this excerpt how it is structured and how you see it or more accurately don't see yeah. it. That there's descriptions of what is happening, but it doesn't really give you much visual information about what it looks like. It just kind of is like, hey, you know, whatever it is that you're thinking is happening right now visually, that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, it's like it, it's like always the like the vision of like flying that comes up. That's like the mm -hmm. one visual thing that keeps coming up is like this flying or diving. Uh, but yeah, it's not very much. It also doesn't explain at all what he's doing while hacking. There is no like nothing goes into that at all. Uh, whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, he 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 has a hacking mini game, uh, and this was one of those yeah. games where they were like, you know what, the mini game wasn't fun. We're gonna take it out. Just press the hack button and hold it for five yeah. seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you either just immediately hack a thing or you go brain dead for five minutes. That's the yeah. Two they, keep that they keep dying. They keep dying all the time. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. We we learn that oftentimes when Case is going into hacker mode, his brain just stops functioning. But like which he's is only wild. like the second guy who's like doing this and surviving. And here we get back yeah, to the whole thing. Yeah, because of how cool here, he is. Here, yeah. He's so cool. <laughs> here we get back into how how Gibson wants to be really cool yeah. in this book. Uh, I think it's funny how we start this off with with Case just seeming like the most average hacker imaginable, but then we learn about like his past hacking 
friends and this guy he learned to hack from who everyone was scared of because he was like brain dead for 40 seconds or whatnot right and like at, at some point in the book it's just like then at that point it's just kind of an offhand mention of how case was just brain dead for five entire minutes while hacking <laughs> right. and he's just fine coming back <laughs> from that and it's like yeah okay <laughs> we get it you're cool and you're the best hacker to have ever existed and no one knows that like everyone just looks at you as this dweeb and it's like it's it's so like gibson i i don't know you can tell how gibson is in real life and how he has read too much sci-fi sometimes i feel like i can relate to gibson in the sense of i have at this point seen too much cyberpunk yeah. But sure. at least I'm actually a hacker. Like it makes not 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 to throw shade. Like I I don't know. I love this book. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a little. It's 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 more than a little bit dated in hackers. Again, just going back to hackers. Like how what when he was uh, eleven. He was able to <laughs> crash 1,507 computer systems, you know, and that was only the beginning of his power. And, and I think there's something interesting about that. It's just guy. and But that's such yeah. a common theme in, like, cyberpunk. is At least, like, older cyberpunk and some of the newer, like, things. I don't know, like, Hackers is this weird thing where I think a lot of people wouldn't consider it cyberpunk. But to me, it very clearly is, yeah. like, oh, trope-wise. Yeah. I think... I think it's just not the aesthetics of cyberpunk but like, yeah it doesn't have the the it's it's not set in the future in the same way and it's not yeah. like like in it, it's not japan yeah it's, it's not it's place not japan. japan it's it's place new york and it's and it's also like these these hackers are not like low lifes and thugs and criminals in the way yes, that they are in high school yeah they're like they're right. cool they're good guys we like them here you have a bunch of people who are doing some really fucked up shit but they're still better than the bad guys, you know? But yes. you know what doesn't happen in Neuromancer? Mm. Nobody picks up a floppy disk on a skateboard. <laughs> yes. I think that there is, I, I would say that Neuromancer is a better book than Hackers is a oh, movie. absolutely. But I do also think that Neuromancer has some issues narratively at its core, where mm. it's like, you need to be willing to put up with a certain amount of specificity there and you need to be willing to sort of fill in the gaps that were left yeah. there and sometimes it's hard to tell to what extent those gaps are intentional uh versus what they are not and i think that hacking is a really good example of that i'm, I'm curious Maya. like did you feel like the hacking in this book like obviously in real life when you are uh, <laughs> hacking you are not seeing oh we're getting into the ice and we're looking I behind have, us I've and never the... taken enough LSD while hacking right. to know if hacking can feel like this <laughs> Okay, uh, it might but, be but... worth a try sometime but uh, no generally that's not what hacking feels like <laughs> well what about the sort of emotional component of it the rush the the feeling of, of all that like do you feel like that's, it captures that I feel like piece? it does capture that I think I already told you that in like our previous text conversation about yeah. this a bit uh like especially this is very early in the book where he's still like living his low life thing like past beyond hacking and like his paranoia mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. like constantly on the run like this per- is kind of a lot of what drives this story is paranoia even if it like goes back a uh, more a bit more in the background it then becomes the paranoia about like the the sacks of toxin he has in, inside him but right. this book is about paranoia and I don't know, I showed you my notes. I, I have to read this one out because it, yeah, it says it. a lot about uh, me reading this book. <laughs> uh, I, I, this is like the only the last note I took after that the book kind of took me. Uh, but yeah, 
I just wrote the mania, the mania, the mania, the mania. This is his work. This is what he does. This is my work. This is what I do. Who am I? What are days? Fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, I don't know. Like, I was just in this moment. And I realized, like, I don't know how Gibson did this. Yeah. But the, the feeling of like paranoia, the feeling of like, the, this was at a point where he wasn't even doing hacking work. He yeah. was like a killer and like right. a career and whatnot but it still is like this feeling of this is my work and it's also slowly ruining me and also <laughs> i am like constantly feeling like i need to run away from my life mm. you can very much tell like it's very explicit in the start that he's just kind of trying to get himself killed on the job like that's yeah. a very explicit thing in the start of the book and like kind of what molly saves him from in a way yeah um and i think that's interesting because in a lot of ways that's very relatable to someone who like lives this weird criminal life uh, and this weird hacker life uh, and I, I, I do wonder where Gibson got the inspiration from for that because it, it's way too well written for someone who hasn't experienced that but maybe he's also just a really good writer specifically for this topic yeah uh, but no I do find it interesting because that's a lot of what like my 2021 was like the start of 2021 when like the first time I really blew up and around then. Whereas, like, I don't know, like, a lot of what led up to the point of where I got indicted and where I got raided at home was just this feeling of, I'm fucked. I will just keep going until something stops me or I die. I don't mm. fucking know. Mm. Like, what else am I gonna do now? Like, it's... And, and it's this, this state of knowing that you are, like, past the point of no return... And, and and where it feels like the only thing that will stop you is like death or prison or something like that. I feel like this book portrays that surprisingly well also throughout the story uh, and like with all the moments of where where suddenly the people he loves around him start dying and you start to notice like, yeah. shit, yeah. where did my life lead me? Like, where am I? Like, uh, and, and I think that's really interesting how well that's portrayed and like... Yeah, like, even for cyberpunk, like, that's a common trope kind of in cyberpunk, but I don't think I've ever seen this laid out in as much of a relatable way as in, like, Neuromancer. Well, I mean, that pretty, I think, well captures a lot of the feeling here, and we haven't really even gotten to the action. So, in our second <laughs> half, we're going to be talking about how the various pieces of this puzzle sort of come together in Case's life. We're going to talk about some of the we're going to talk about a rogue AI, all sorts of other exciting cyberpunk shit coming your way. So stay tuned for that. Hello, listeners of the Worst of All Possible Worlds podcast. My name is Case. I'm the coolest hacker cyberspace has ever known, and I want to tell you about a dream I keep having. Now, in this dream, I'm reclining in my sleep coffin. Molly, my beloved, she's the coolest hacker girl cyberspace has ever known. She lies beside me, resplendent in temper foam. You might have heard of her. I mean, she's a lot like me, but she has boobs. But here's the weird thing. In this dream, I can't actually see her. I can only see one of her boobs. It bobbles in front of me the ripest of pears, ideally positioned for me to pick. I clasp it in my hand, run my fingers under its supple curvature, caress it fondly as one would a chinchilla or other small rodent. And as I hold it, I hear it speak. Case, the breast says, hello. I feel myself jack into cyberspace. And suddenly, 
it's no longer in my hand. The floor gives out beneath me. I am falling. And as I plummet, I look around me. Through the rapidly dimming sunlight illuminating this chasm from above, I see that it's walled with heaving breasts of all shapes, sizes, and weights. We need you, Case, says the walls, an impossible cacophony of voices swirling through my head. A well of areole, a nipple panopticon. Join us. I look down at my chest. Where once there was a bisected flat plane, there is now one gigantic breast. I hold up my hand in front of me. It too is a breast. My arms, once firm and rough, are now smooth rippled with nipples. The hand swallows the arm, the foot swallows the leg, the torso swallows its appendages, then my head. I am encased completely. And in this moment, I feel absolute peace and tranquility. It is a reward greater than cracking the densest ice, a release beyond that which I felt after eluding even the most advanced AI. I am overcome. Tears well up inside of me until I can no longer hold them in. I lactate. I have become that which I love most. I am a boob. I jack out. So yeah, I mean, I'm having trouble unpacking this one. And if you have any ideas for what this dream might mean, feel free to get in touch with me or my friends at the worst of all possible worlds or email me directly at case at supercoolguy.hacker. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. So in our first half, we talked a great deal about, I almost called him Dade because I just have hackers <laughs> on the brain. Case, there should be a glossary in the back of the book, but um, <laughs> we've got Case. He's out here. He's getting that bread. He's hacking those systems. And uh, we, we, we go through a sequence in which there is one of these big hacks, right? He goes ahead and he hacks this company called SenseNet. SenseNet has a security system, and this is where we're introduced to the concept of ice. Now, ice in this world is exactly what it sounds like. It's a huge block of digital ice, and you it's get like through what it. We call a firewall in the exactly. real world, except it's like the opposite. Because in this world, an icebreaker is basically the program that Case needs to fire oh. up in order to get into these systems, which have unimaginable complexity. And so getting into them requires the aid of a dedicated program. And the other thing that we should note here is that dedicated programs can also be personalities. One example of this is. Dixie Flatline, mm -hmm. uh, which is the archived personality of a guy who knew a whole lot about hacking, I yeah, guess. It, it was also his mentor. That's the right. interesting. It's one right. of his two right. mentors. The other guy is somehow immediately irrelevant after that <laughs> bit of exposition. Dixie Flatline, we'll find out, does matter a great deal because he continues to mentor Case in sort of this weird disembodied robot form, mm -hmm. right? Uh, he, he's, he's sort of like a semi-conscious AI. Now, there's also another character that we get introduced to here who's going to be very important. This is the character Wintermute. Wintermute is sort of the big bad AI in the tradition of big bad AIs in the sci-fi genre, you know, coming two years again after the movie Tron and the Master Control program. And you can picture Wintermute as looking like whatever you want. I picture him as looking like the MCP, except blue. Okay. Uh, he's, he's like, he's like a, if GLaDOS and Wheatley were less fuckable. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. We don't really know what Wintermute's motivations truly are. But what we do know is that Armitage 
basically exists as Wintermute's meat puppet, more or less, uh, that Wintermute wants to go in and do all of these crazy hacky things. And again, his his ultimate purpose for all of this is unknown. We just know that he's big, he's bad, and he's really, really scary. The thing I find interesting about Wintermute, which I guess Gibson later explains away as being part of how he works, is that he like has no consistent personality or goal at all throughout this right. entire book. Mm. Uh, he does later explain this as like, oh, I don't have an, like, personality per se, I need to, like, take this by impersonating someone else, basically. Uh, I mean, the main thing that I latched onto with Wintermute is that Wintermute is a Swiss citizen. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Wintermute as an I.I. is a Swiss citizen, and it gets really hard into... Yeah, Wintermute is created by Tessier Ashpool. Which yes. I find really funny that it's supposedly like this rich Swiss family. At least half of it is supposed to be Swiss, right? Yeah, they're a Franco-Swiss like capitalist dynasty. Yes. I, I guess. find it really interesting because like the yeah, Tessier as like a French name that's possibly Swiss, right? That yeah. wouldn't be necessarily from the Bern region, but it's like half French. We're let it pass. Yeah. <laughs> it's a half French region of Switzerland. Ashpool. Seriously, that's the best Swiss <laughs> name you could come up with. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's once again like a, a, a genius moment of Gibson being unable to do research. The only two Swiss cities mentioned in this entire book as well are Bern and Zurich, yeah. uh, which right. it's 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 Bern is the capital and Zurich is the biggest city. Congrats, you uh, know about Switzerland. This guy opened up his Encyclopedia Britannica. He knew what he was talking about. Yeah, the thing I find really funny about the Switzerland portrayal in Gibson's book is that this is his connection to Dan Brown which if you've ever read a Dan Brown book you will notice that every single Dan Brown book contains a reference to Switzerland (laughs) every single one of them he's really obsessed with Switzerland but it's always really badly portrayed it's like the American understanding of what Switzerland is with zero research. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's 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 get into the nuts and bolts of this a little bit, shall we? Uh, what? How? How is uh, the imagination of Switzerland for William Gibson different from the real thing? I I think it's just this this I don't know. The, the funny thing is Gibson doesn't talk about what Switzerland is at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's true. <laughs> it's just, we kind of assume, oh, it's Switzerland. There's like some weird neutrality going on. They're probably kind of okay for humans. I don't know. Uh, and I, I think that's the only reason Switzerland appears here, which is pretty much the same reason it appears in, like, Dan Brown things. The right. funniest thing about Dan Brown is that Dan Brown doesn't even know what the Swiss flag looks like. The, he has this <laughs> entire scene where he in detail describes the Swiss flag as being a big red cross. Uh, no! And, <laughs> no! And I, I think that's so incredibly funny uh, <laughs> that, like, oh. no one on his team, like, I don't know, has ever, like, thought of the fact to maybe Google the flag at least. That is some American, uh, some fucking Yankee coded behavior. Yes, I love I, that. I, I think, I don't know, it like took me like two damn brown books to realize that him being obsessed with Switzerland is just a thing. And that's why I sure. just accepted this from Gibson. It's like, okay, this is just a right American writers thing. They love bringing up Switzerland. It's, it's like, yeah. well, yeah. and, and I, I feel like geographically a lot of different things are used for flavor, right? Yes. Because Absolutely. We, we, we immediately then go to fucking Istanbul. And again, is there a real knowledge of like what Turkey is? Is oh, it used for anything not. other than 
some no. light seasoning? No. They go to a bazaar. They go to a fucking <laughs> Turkish bazaar. I don't know how he did it's it like, because it's just a book, but you, you turn the page and you just start hearing, I mean, also with his like characterization of like Chiba and stuff, it's like mm-hmm. so, it's like, I don't know. It's the stereotyping is so so extreme, yeah. and like he had the first mention of any black character, it's immediately like, oh, and he has tribal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just uh. like I don't know. Like it's. Yeah, no. Uh, it's it's gonna get a little racist here, folks, because uh, we get to Istanbul. We meet a character named Peter Riviera. This guy's not racist. The racist depiction, by the yeah. way, but it is a depiction of a fucking psychopath. But he's our psycho, right? We, yeah. we need this bad of a dude uh, in our party. And, and really, it is kind of video game rules here yeah. where we are basically adding party members, mm-hmm. right? Yes. I, no, Peter Riviera like, has joined your party. Our, our, our message is just traveling them across the world, mostly for no reason. But sometimes right. they pick someone up along the way. I think the funniest trope that starts then is this trope that Molly and Case are somehow like lesser because they're, they're the ones like doing the dirty work yeah. because from then on they travel like not like like Armitage and then also Riviera always travel like business class go to all the Hiltons right next to the yeah. airport this yeah, is somehow yeah, yeah. really important <laughs> it's really important that Armitage always goes to the Hilton closest to the airport this reminds me all of this reminds me of nothing so much as Jerry B. Jenkins in yes, Left Behind yes. which we talked about at the beginning of the year where like the, th- the way that we know that Buck is a cool character is that he has a membership to the fucking uh, airport, like, business class lounge. Yeah. There's always the mentions of these countries, which, again, mostly exist to the, for the sake of, like, what is what is Israel to them? Well, it's the place that is it has the desert and things, yep, yep. you know, <laughs> there's there's so little specificity here. But what we do get is brands. Yeah. We get a world in which everything is dictated. Like, for instance, they go up into space in a shuttle that is with J.A.L. Japan Airlines. <laughs> they end up at a space colony called Zion, which is, I guess sort of like this weird Rastafarian thing. I thought it was going to be Mormon at first, which would have been a much stronger choice. Instead, it's just these Rastafarian guys who are like, yeah, man, we're here on the space tug, yeah, man. It's also funny how this is suddenly where he introduces accented writing. Yes. It's only characters that have dialects and writing. It's and so it makes racist. it impossible to read. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it, it is an interesting perspective. And again, like I, like I said earlier, we don't see that in a lot of other sci-fi until cyberpunk stuff comes along. Is like this idea mm-hmm. that like, yeah, America reaching the heights that it has is not the end of history. Western European power is not always going to be at the top of the global mm-hmm. order. Things will change right. again. So sometimes, yeah, maybe some of the, the biggest operators in space are going to be from the What's frustrating about this for me is that there is an opportunity here, as with a lot of the other things, as we've mentioned, where if he had come at it from a place of real engagement and research, he could have created something very specific and cool here where it is. Oh, you know, here are some basically space pirates in a way that could potentially recall the actual pirates of the Caribbean, Mm. not fucking Johnny Depp, but like the real Real guys, you know? Yeah. It was just not relevant at all. Like even the fact like, like, like the fact that they then went to like the real space colony that is like cool and actual and exists 
they didn't give a shit about Simon. Like, there wasn't any rivalry there or anything. And I think, but the most thing, the main thing that made me think, okay, this portrayal is, like, kind of racist is how somehow all the Cyanites they know are constantly on drugs and really stupid. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, this was not needed. Like, you did not need to make them stupid for, like, no reason. Yeah, the spaceship is, like, in disrepair. Which, again, like, you could have the spaceship be in disrepair because they are sort of in a specific Western trope where they have to cobble stuff together just to skate by or whatever. But again, that would require a specificity that Gibson doesn't seem interested in dealing with. He only really finds specificity when it is to do with either his own protagonist or the all-powerful AI that is Wintermute. And I find that kind of disappointing. It's a missed opportunity. But, you know, it it does ultimately pay off at the end, the the, the existence of these characters. And and we'll talk about that later on. I do want to talk about the specificity of the off-world colony where the world's wealthiest people, you know, live, work, and play that we get to. That bit, a lot of that and how it's described just feels like Gibson was writing this book and he had a dream. Yeah. <laughs> like one night he had a dream. And yeah. like, I don't know, like, okay, knowing how Gibson writes about drugs and knowing Gibson so far, he was probably on drugs writing parts oh, of yeah. this book. And we see this, I think, in the description mm-hmm. of Freeside, this incredible world. Directly overhead, along the nighted axis, the hologram sky glittered with a fanciful constellation suggesting playing cards, the faces of dice, a top hat, a martini glass. The intersection of Desiderata and Jules Verne formed a kind of gulch, the balconied terraces of freeside cliff dwellers rising gradually to the grassy tablelands of another casino complex. Case watched a drone microlight bank gracefully in an updraft at the green verge of an artificial mesa, lit for seconds by the soft glow of the invisible casino. The thing was kind of a pilotless biplane of gossamer polymer, its wings silkscreened to resemble a giant butterfly. Then it was gone. Beyond the mesa's edge, he'd seen a wink of reflected neon off glass, either lenses or the turrets of lasers. The drones were part of the spindle security system, controlled by some central computer. So here we have another really strong visual. We have this space station that exists in this place of impossible geometry. The thing I do actually find interesting about both space stations is how they make it very clear that this is not a world case as used to. It takes them like so long to get used to this world. He's until the very end of the book not super used to navigating this space. And I think that is interesting to like show these differences like both somehow in class but also then we see that the space is not just the higher class but also in like the type of crime he does i guess because Mm -hmm. molly is like intimately familiar with the space as someone who does like physical shit like 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 she's kind of the counterpart to to case i think also like with what we spoke about earlier like they basically do like she does the runs in real world and he does Mm -hmm. the runs in cyberspace and i do think that's actually a very interesting way to portray a lot of this but uh, which which I think is like kind of lost in other media. Like once again to bring up Ghost in the Shell, where that's both like in one person. Like because uh, Motoka is like both the person doing the runs in physical space, but then she also like checks in and does the cyberspace shit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very interesting in this depiction, where like that's two characters. Like yeah, it feels like a video game for me personally. 
I imagine it in terms of a video game level design. And I think about how fun and cool it would be to be able to do these things in parallel as a player. And I think to your point too, Maya, that the free side, right? This this crazy like fucking wealthy space station casino place. Part of the reason that Case is so uncomfortable with it is that it is the place of the upper class. Yes. This is the closest that this book gets to class-based social analysis. Yeah, I think also so far this book doesn't even talk about the fact that they're like being different classes really existing. It's like everything's rundown because that's all Case has ever known. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this very explicit moment at one point where he only ever saw the wealthy as like the corporations he was hacking. Right. The corporations he was going against or like maybe like a mob boss he was working for. But to him, the wealthy were always like these these like small groups and uh, or, or like a company and never this like social class. Yeah. Because like the only wealthy people he ever directly interacted with were like wealthy crime guys which is right like that's a very different, different thing, thing class-wise yeah. i don't know like in like in, in 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 a way like yeah no like you can be lower class and rich which i think is a thing this book does kind of show like because in the end they are both pretty fucking rich yeah. unlike his previous jobs the target here is the one percent of the one percent of the one percent right this is um lady three jane marie france terrier ashpool who is <laughs> they um, made it very clear that she's like high noble this is once again a thing of like this seems like a very american understanding of europe mm. that uh switzerland is like these nobles because yeah. that's like the one thing Switzerland never had. Yeah. Like, yeah Switzerland is explicitly not really a feudal country. Like right, Switzerland it's, it's is famously. very defined by the fact that we won against the Habsburgs. That's kind of funny. Like, yes, Switzerland is a rich ass country, but Switzerland is specifically the kind of rich people Case knows. Yeah. Like those like just like business guys and what bankers and wine like families. Bankers. But no, this is like a family dynasty thing that they're up against, which that's like Yes, that does exist in Switzerland and people who moved here, but like, I don't know, that would have been way better characterized as like this Austrian company. I was gonna say, or like these motherfuckers are like in Monaco or Liechtenstein or something like that. Something like, yeah, or Liechtenstein. Like, you could have literally made it like the the Liechtenstein, like, uh, family of like the the I was reading about that guy just the other day. That's why, that's why he was top of mind. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's interesting the way that like space plays a role in cyberpunk that kind of gets ignored like usually mm. and it's it's kind of by design it's like space is always that thing that's over there and some people are out there and maybe occasionally our story gets to go into space but like for the most part this is about the people on the ground like like blade runner the whole thing is that sure all yes. of our prosperity is because we've offloaded our labor which is true of empire true of capital but we've had to offload it now so far to the 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 orbiting planets of orion we can just forget about yeah it. we can just make entire breeds of people that die at age 30 and we don't have to worry about them and here we have space as like everyone has offloaded everything back to Earth and all of the absolute wealthiest people are, are living up in space. And also some weird pirates who are somehow not very characterized <laughs> at all. It, right. it really is sad how unimportant Sion is in this. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like, it's very clear that it's like lean onto pirates and shit. It's just... Yeah, maybe yeah. it shows up in the other two books in the trilogy. I, I don't know, because there were two that he made after this. Yeah. But I've, I've not read those. But it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Whitey on the Moon, the poem by Gil Scott Heron. Oh, yeah. You know, and he's talking about, like, all of 
all of these things that he has to deal with. You know, he has to keep paying rent. He has to find another job. It's all it's very mundane, but it's also like eroding his quality of life. And yet we also have people standing on the moon. Right. Yeah. But it's not a it's not a that is so far outside of his reality. We may as well not have anyone out there. Right. We've reached mm-hmm. such incredible technological heights. And yet we are still it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like I still have right. to pay taxes. <laughs> I still have to pay rent. Yeah. I will still die if I don't do that. Even though like that, that is also like a thing I think about a lot. That's like, I guess I guess I am a cyberpunk character in the sense of weird, <laughs> weird, weird, low life person who like does gets by by doing crime shit and like <laughs> fighting the oppressors and whatnot and like uh i don't know not to like put me on a high horse myself <laughs> but like like you do end up in this weird thing where you're like no i don't know we're like so far but i'm still here like i even have this weird even more disconnect where i don't know i'm, I'm a famous person this sounds seem, oh, this always sounds so stupid to say yeah. uh but i'm a famous person like there is like probably a million people who know me maybe even more uh who know who i am who when like my name is brought up it rings a bell i'm fucking poor as shit i'm currently like 3k in debt right, uh, right. I, I i i still can't really pay my rent myself mm. uh, i live with a roommate who also can't really pay our rent a lot and like my my all my friends and all my parents like i don't know like and i'm in in the local punk scene no one has money yeah it's just it's just weird like the the, the disconnect gets even bigger when you're like this person everyone knows but somehow like the only thing I get out of it is is having to move because people show up at my house door and, and uh, like <laughs> yeah and like and like some online cloud, but I can't live off that. Right. Well, and and I think there's an interesting parallel between that sort of thing and the world yes. of this book, right? Because Case similarly is very well known in the specific circles that require his services mm-hmm. and a little bit outside of that, right? But his his only real utility for the people hiring him is that specific skill set. There's nothing more broadly. They are not interested in him as a person. No, he's they don't a, give he a fucking, fucking shit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, and, it, and, and, and similarly, we have the character of Riviera, right? Peter Riviera. Do do they care about him because of his fucking artistic ability or whatever? No, they're interested in him because he is a fucking psychopath who also has the ability to draw these very 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 wealthy mm. people in using his sicko fantasies that is what draws people in on freeside that's what draws lady three jane in right yeah. is that he does this gross like sh- hollow show <laughs> in which he fucks and then also dismembers molly i guess this is one of the weirdest sequences in the book and honestly one of the ones that grabbed me the most mm. that you've got this sort of line between the sadism of this performance and the material necessity of it yeah. because this is how they hook her right this is how they get their mark lady three jane herself is also a sadist and so to to, to get her in it requires the performance of sadism and they do exactly that yeah i, th- I think that's also an interesting that's like probably almost the most political thing gibson is willing to do in this and it's yes. very it's very implicit it's like it he doesn't touch on it very explicitly but except for like the few sentences where i, f- I i'm not even sure like no it's it's cases thoughts about this whole like dreamer thing which is like these mm-hmm. people who draw, draw these holograms and it's always uh, like weird saddest shit and like also the thing molly talks about about like these kinks of the rich people mm-hmm. yeah and, and it's I've, just I've, about I've... how 
how how little regard they hold for other people. And yeah, I, I have an excerpt here uh, that I'd like to read. So this is just describing what is happening in this hollow show, right? Yeah. Riviera was in the bed now, naked. His clothing had been a part of the projection, but Case couldn't remember seeing it fade away. The black flower lay at the foot of the bed, still seething with its blue inner flame. Then the torso formed as Riviera caressed it into being, white, headless, and perfect, sheened with the faintest gloss of sweat. Molly's body. Case stared, his mouth open. But it wasn't Molly, it was Molly as Riviera imagined her. The breasts were wrong. <laughs> the nipples larger, too dark. <laughs> that, that is the one thing that took me out of this. It's <laughs> so good. It's like, the tits are all wrong! Riviera and the limbless torso writhed together on the bed, crawled over by the hands with their bright nails. The bed was thick now with folds of yellowed, rotting lace that crumbled at a touch. Motes of dust boiled around Riviera in the twitching limbs, the scurrying, pinching, caressing hands. Case glanced at Molly. Her face was blank. The colors of Riviera's projection heaved and turned in her mirrors. Armitage was leaning forward, his hands round the stem of a wine glass, his pale eyes fixed on the stage, the glowing room. Now limbs and torso had merged, and Riviera shuddered. The head was there, the image complete. Molly's face with smooth quicksilver drowning the eyes. Riviera and the Molly image began to couple with a renewed intensity. Then the image slowly extended a clawed hand and extruded its five blades. With a languorous, dreamlike deliberation, it raked Riviere's bare back. Case caught a glimpse of exposed spine, but he was already up and stumbling for the door. And the show continues. Uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of this depiction of sexuality and violence all merged into one thing. Yeah, I think the most important thing about this as well is how non-consensualist and how other than Armitage, no one of the none of the three on the table even knew this was about to happen. Yeah. Including yeah. Molly. I, I I like I'm I was surprised at how like like this is the thing I think I told you over text as well, Josh. Uh where it surprises me how at the same time Gibson is really horny. Mm-hmm. Uh, also really misogynistic at points, but yeah. he somehow understands, like, where where boundaries yeah. are. Like, yeah. this sounds really yeah. stupid, but, like, he, he, uh, he for, for, on the one hand, he's really good at portraying sex work in a, in a way where it's like, yes, this is a thing people need to do. This mm-hmm. is, a, like, a thing people do to survive. It's just a job. Like, it, it's not portrayed in any of, like, really chachi way except for the opening scene. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not portrayed in a chachi way when Molly does it. Um, <laughs> but um, it, it's, all, it's, it's also this thing of him somehow having a vague idea of, like, feminism. But where it gets into this whole thing that I find interesting across... Uh, cyberpunk, where where I I think I, I I've seen this term elsewhere talking about like these tropes, where we get into this like cyber feminism, uh, where I don't think a lot of this is on purpose, but Gibson portrays a lot of things interestingly, where wherein both he realizes things are wrong and portrays them, and then we get in yeah, and and like he he shows things as wrong, the things that are happening in today's world, exaggerated into the cyber world where anything is possible, which I guess we see that a lot today with like deep fake porn and other like yeah. celebrity fake porn, and I think it's interesting how he kind of predicted that. Yeah, it is. It's oddly uh, prescient. And, and 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 how like that is judged in this context, where like it is like like he has this weird understanding, I guess, from the time of like. You are allowed to just be horny for anyone, really obviously, and you can just sexualize the shit out of women. But also, this is too far. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And and I think that's an interesting trope across like 
uh, Cyberpunk. Once again, to bring up uh, Ghost in the Shell, where I find it really interesting that we have a female, like, star. Yeah. Which, cool, like, she is portrayed as, like, the strong woman and she can do this, and whenever people in the story make sexist jokes at her, it's like they, like, are kind of made fun of as, like, these stupid men who don't get this. But at the same time, she's also really sexualized. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, the more the shows of uh, Ghost in the Shell and the films go on, the less she's wearing. Like, <laughs> yeah. this goes onwards into the Netflix show from, like, last year. She's wearing even less now than in the original films. Like, it's it's a whole thing. Uh, and I think that's very interesting of how much of it is, like, be it on purpose or not, a criticism of how society views women. And at the same time, also, like, this empowering view of women as being, like, yeah, they, they they can actually do shit, you know. They can, like, be cool. They can be these cool underground figures and whatnot. And then also with how... Like, honestly, also with how, like, the... Tessie um, uh, Ashpool family is... Ashpool family is portrayed. Where, at the end of the day, like, it's the women who win. Which I, yeah. I do think is interesting. And yeah. I think the key thing here, too, is that... The issue here, in terms of what makes this scene so horrifying is not so much what is being portrayed as the fact that it is being portrayed without any consent, right? Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, this is a horrifying, inverted, weird, gross fantasy version of the thing. And Molly reacts to it in a way that like, you know, she's just like, well, you know, it happens. She doesn't really speak to the thing because it's clear that in her life she's had to experience Mm. being objectified and degraded in this way in many different forms right there's something interesting about that too and how it it, it, it's hard to call it a liberatory politic exactly because gibson's way of viewing women is on some level deeply misogynistic and yet right i i think he accidentally it, it does a really good mirror of the world we live in mm. in this yeah. way where you can judge it. I don't think this was his intention. Like, and like as same with a lot of cyberpunk. Mm. I don't want to hand him too much credit here. You uh, do not have to hand it to no, him. <laughs> like, I, like, absolutely not. Like, you can tell it's misogynistic through, like, a lot of this piece. But, but, but also, he accidentally put, like, due to this. I think it's due to his misogyny and due to the misogyny of a lot of cyberpunk writers that it ends up being this really good mirror of the world we live in yeah. and how women are viewed through it. Where, like, it's a really bad depiction, but it lets you, like, think. Like, I think, mm-hmm. I, I like... Yeah, I don't know. This is this is another moment of this where like uh, bad depiction and bad writing doesn't actually automatically equal like it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Like like not the Tumblr thing of we need to <laughs> we need to right. cancel these writers because they wrote the character that is yeah. bad. I think it's it's a very interesting mirror of society that just accidentally happened because cyberpunk is written largely by really horny shitty man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where it, like, lets you reflect on this. And, and, and I do think it's interesting, though, like, yeah, his his reflection on, like, consensual and non-consensual things and how, how I don't know, it's a very explicitly somehow really kink-friendly setting he's writing mm-hmm. in. Yeah. But then he makes a very clear cut of, like, no, when it's not consensual, that's bad. Yeah. yeah, this is the line, yeah. Like, Brian, even, what do you think? Well, it, what it reminds me of the most in as far as, like, other things that I've read is Brave New World. Because in Brave New World, oh. a much, much older piece of science fiction, people go to the feelies, which are right. you know movies that engage all the senses, 
And the one that you get a glimpse of in the book is three weeks in a helicopter, which is just a porno. And and the way that Huxley writes about it, I think it's an interracial porno, too. But it's like that's that is the horror to him is the fact that people are kind of like in part, they're like eschewing real sex Mm. and real relationships to go to these artificial experiences. But I think that that Gibson has found something far more substantive to to play on using sort of a similar mechanism and then and then taking it a step Mm. further. Yeah, there, there's there's sort of this this raw sensuality to it that I feel like we don't see again as much in the book after this scene. Mm. But it's just a really interesting scene, and that's why I wanted to point it up. From here, we move on to more plot, yeah. basically, right? The, the, the hacking must continue. And the way that the sort of narrative uh, unfolds for the remainder of this book is pretty much that we're going to see Case seeing what's happening to Molly through the stim stim chip. And then he's going to sort of flip over to the hacking world where he hacks various programs. And then he wakes back up and talks to his buddy, Malcolm, who is his uh, Rastafarian friend on the tug. It docks with Armitage's ship. And then we find out that Armitage actually used to be a guy called Corto. What matters is that Armitage slash Corto gets ejected into space by the AI. Uh, again, th- and this is very um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, yeah. right? Mm. Uh, and now the AI is fully running the show, right? Wintermute is in charge. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> ah. <laughs> I think it's important here as well to mention that like Dixie and Case have been given access to this cool military grade virus from China yes. that is like the shit ever but also it's really slow <laughs> which is definitely not just for plot reasons uh, it's it's it surely isn't to keep you in the book at that point and without no. wanting to put it down uh it's just it. They just set up a timer. Uh, it's he loves setting up timers. He has to go back and check the progress yeah. bar every so often. <laughs> yeah, except the progress bar is like this cool visual of the like shark going through the thing. Right, 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 like right. The coolest virus he has ever seen. Uh, <laughs> it's also the first virus I think he that, that that is described in any detail whatsoever. So to us, it's obviously also the coolest one yeah. we've ever oh, seen. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. think it's worth noting that yeah. Dixie. Right. Dixie Flatline is this uploaded ROM. We talked about how it's it's a guy who died um, and how he's different from the AI because you have the AI. He has a person. He has a personality, <laughs> but he also just like has limitations. Like he, he mm-hmm. kind of just wants to be dead. And he's like, yes, it's- his one wish for the story and like his main driving factor of why he's helping at all is that like Wintermute uh, and and Case basically promised him to delete his ROM if they right. like managed to finish this yeah. I And in a way, like he, he lacks the interiority that Wintermute has. In, in some ways, he reminds me more of a large language model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah um, more like, no, like it's not unlike talking to chat GPT. Yeah, including the thing where we are fairly early on introduced to this concept, which then ends up being incredibly irrelevant for the plot, which is that that Dixie... Uh, if you turn off the computer because it's just a ROM, he will not remember what you talked to him about mm-hmm, right. last time. This is relevant at like two points in the book just so they can reintroduce Dixie again because he doesn't appear for a few pages. Uh, but besides that, 
Uh, that's once again one of those things where Gibson somehow spends a surprising amount of time on specificity for things that are not important whatsoever, uh, but doesn't describe the things that keep coming up again and again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> those pieces are if you if you grant it charitably, which you know you can choose to do, or you can mm. say that it's poor craft, and it's hard to know entirely. But I do think that when it most works, it is what is interesting to Case. Yeah. Right. What yeah. does he find to be interesting new information versus the stuff that oh yeah of course I already know this the problem though is that as a reader the stuff that Case knows is not the stuff that yeah. you know and yeah. there are times at which you just need a little bit more than what he is willing to give you as a writer yeah I, I think I think Gibson can like in the mind of the reader excuse quite a lot of shit by it being like what this weird fucked up character sees uh, and like this definitely works in his advantage a mm-hmm. lot like I don't think this book would be as good if it weren't from the like if it were explicitly yeah. a narrator run book this would be bad like we do not know what's going on absolutely uh, and, and this is like yeah like a lot of times he explicitly writes cases being confused and whether that's him being lazy or actually trying to characterize case we will never know no uh, but <laughs> Unless he wants to come on our show to talk about it. Elon yeah. Gibson, come on the worst of all possible worlds. Um, we we hope you're not mad yeah. at us for trashing your book yeah. too much. But like, but like Dixie reminds me a lot. I, I've mentioned this with the guy frozen in ice in Deus Ex as well. Reminds me of. Oh, of, yeah. Lucius reminds Demers, me yeah. of Commander Powell in Dark Star, the Dan O'Bannon, John Carpenter science fiction movie from the 70s. Uh, that they made when they were like still still in school where Commander Powell is just this guy who is cryogenically frozen and they keep having to wake him up every now and then to ask him like for passwords and stuff that <laughs> that they still need and they just won't let him die and he'll just ask them questions like how did the Dodgers do this year and they're like oh the, the Dodgers <laughs> disbanded 30 years ago and he's like oh I forget so many things down here so <laughs> many things <laughs> Dixie mechanically what he does in the plot is he helps a little bit of like where we need more exposition about sort of where we are going and why we are going there. That's what he provides because he has the knowledge of that special military program or whatever. That's interesting. No, because at first he's like, oh, I've never seen a thing like this before. But at very first glance and based on the word you just used that I said, I didn't know. This seems very uh, military. I'm getting too bogged down in the plot because the plot kind of doesn't matter. What matters is the vibes. Yeah, Yeah, this is very vibes. But like that's kind of like hackers. between hackers yeah. and this yeah. yeah it's just the vibes are really good I it, it doesn't matter what's going on really it's just like it's cool to watch yeah. and the vibes say something it's probably not what the author meant to say but like the vibes are here to say a thing but yeah you can see why like this never got made into a, a movie and never got like yeah, a, right. a solid video game it adaptation it it's just work. a mess it's just very messy it works as this book, as a book, but like the moment you try to like, there are a lot of things that really aren't concrete here that you would have to deal with if you're going to start filming it. Yeah, no, like I, you, you could. I mean, you could probably t- make this into a movie if you talk to Gibson for enough hours for him to come yeah. up with a plot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it will be one of those movies where people who 
haven't read the book would like the movie and people who have read the book would want to kill William Gibson. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, and and one I think really good example of that where it's sort of like, what's the plot here? That doesn't really matter. Is when Molly goes and infiltrates a mansion, I think, the Ashpool mansion, question mark, to get an important key, question yeah. mark, because you need the MacGuffin to open the door. You need the key to open the it, door. It just becomes a video yeah, game. Yeah. yeah, it does. My note here is that this mission where Molly has to go in would make for a really cool video game in the vein of an immersive mm. sim such as Thief or yeah, Thief 2. Absolutely. Because you go in and, and like she's literally like running around through all these places. She's evading bad guys. She's overriding security systems and she gets a fucking key. Yeah, and I, I, I think what also once again works in Gibson's favor is the fact that he can like just flip away from her and then yes. flip yes. back into her being way yeah. ahead. It so doesn't he, matter what he, happens. He, yeah. It's 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 his cool plot device he created for himself to not need to write story. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. It's, it's kind of admirable how much of this book is just kind of him coming up with cool ideas to not have to write, which explains <laughs> how he fit this much plot in quotes into like 270 pages yeah. because like the, the amount of like plot he's trying to put into this would be like a thousand page book. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, but like it's just he just figures out ways to skip ahead he figures out ways for a case to like forget things and then there's like the drugs he starts taking yeah. again and suddenly things happen it's still funny how like gibson suddenly introduces these new side characters in free side like his new friends and then they like fuck him over but it's yeah. not relevant to the plot whatsoever it's just relevant so he's on drugs when the important story bit starts in um, the in the next sort of intro <laughs> Interesting or important story beat that I did want to get to is what happens once both uh, Molly and Case have gotten into Straylight. Mm. And Straylight is sort of like the inner sanctum of the uh, Tessier Ashpool family. Yeah, it's like their like mansion thing, but also they yeah. all have like their own mansions inside the mansion. Yeah, why not? It's, <laughs> it, 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 it's at a point where he just kind of loses Doesn't his own matter. plot. Just it does, it like it, It's like he starts describing more details in really high detail, but like the right. overall thing doesn't yeah. matter at all anymore. Like So at this point, Case has gotten to a terminal in Straylight, which is the Tessier Ashpool inner sanctum. And... He jacks in using his adapter because, again, (laughs) this is the place where he needs an adapter. And thank goodness, (laughs) thank goodness he got the dongle. And all of a sudden, Case is on the beach from Death Stranding. There seemed to be a city beyond the curve of the beach, but it was far away. He crouched on his haunches on the damp sand, his arms wrapped tight across his knees and shook. He stayed that way for what seemed a very long time, even after the shaking stopped. The city, if it was a city, was low and grey. At times it was obscured by banks of mist that came rolling in over the lapping surf. At one point he decided that it wasn't a city at all, but some single building, perhaps a ruin. He had no way of judging its distance. The sand was the shade of tarnished silver that hadn't gone entirely black. The beach was made of sand. The beach was very long, the sand was damp, the bottoms of his jeans were wet from the sand. He held himself and rocked, singing a song without words or tune. What's cool about this moment, to me, 
is that it is just such a dramatic change of scenery and pace from what has happened before. It, it totally different. It rips you out of the story. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is one of his best writing moments. It almost made me put down the book for a bit because I was like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. What is yeah. he doing? Like, I, it was like at a point where I was like, oh shit, I only have like 30 pages yeah. left. And right. suddenly it's like, huh? Every, everything yeah, has he changed. Just rips, he just rips you away for like almost two like short chapters. And it's it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Everything changes in this moment. We we start to reach this because he's he's bringing us on this journey here. He's taking yes. us. Like, yeah, it's it's interesting how like before this he really starts building up to the climax. You know, mm -hmm. we're like basically at the point, and then suddenly it's like nothing. Yeah. I know I sort of said this before the excerpt, but. This reminded me of nothing so much as Hideo Kojima's masterpiece, yeah. Death Stranding. It feels, like, it feels Hideo Kojima and how, like, including the suddenly being ripped out of something you're comfortable yeah. with. Like, that's yeah. very Kojima. And uh, the rules are different here. I will not explain them to you, but it's different. <laughs> right. Also, right. there's monster energy. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one constant. Yeah, like, you can Absolutely. definitely see the cyberpunk influence in the Metal Gear games, and especially mm -hmm. Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, you can see it in Police Knots and Snatcher, but I didn't really think about uh, Death Stranding as a cyberpunk game until getting to this part of Neuromancer, and then I was like, oh, well, fucking course it is, right? Because yeah. he turned he turned the afterlife into the internet. Yeah, <laughs> and, well, and there's, there's something, too, about how in Neuromancer you have the parallel world of cyberspace that sits on top of and parallel to the mm -hmm. real world. And it's the exact same thing with beaches in yeah. Death Stranding. And I feel like some of this is William Gibson getting his like old hippie stuff in here. It's a I little, a little bit like, of Buddhism, I, I a little bit of, yeah. No, and also still like the whole touch of like drugs. Yeah. You can see the fact that he takes psychedelics throughout this yes, entire yeah. book. Yes. And, and I don't mean this even as a criticism. I think this makes it interesting is the fact that he's able to imagine like alternate realities, alternate visions so well. Mm -hmm. I think comes down to him being one of those writers who actually benefited from having done science. Yeah. And so at this point, Case just kind of wanders around on the beach for a while, much like Norman Reedus in Death Stranding. <laughs> and also much like Norman Reedus in Death Stranding, he comes across a lady. Uh, in this case, the, the woman is uh, appears to at least be Linda Lee, the ex-girlfriend of his who he also saw die. Uh, well, guess what? She's back in pog form and uh, <laughs> she's, she's here and she's real and she's my friend. And they uh, they hang out and they fuck. And then of course they fuck. Of course they fuck. Do we hear the, about her boobs, though? I don't no, remember if we the, hear about her boobs in this part. It's it's the least described sex scene. That was what surprised me the most is that you could tell that he wanted to get the book finished yeah. at this point. <laughs> right, because, right. yes, he had to fuck her. But the main description of it was just like, oh, and it was like it always happened. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it's just, yeah, just sure. from here to eternity. <laughs> they do the from here to eternity scene. They're just rolling over yeah, each other, sand it's, everywhere. It's, <laughs> it's just generally like the thing I find really interesting is how throughout this entire book, he keeps wanting Linda back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But 
we know nothing about her. Like, yeah. and we are, we live inside his brain, but the only thing we know about is how Molly is hot as shit, how Molly, right. like, loves him, how he, like, loves Molly, and how, also, at the point where he started fucking Molly, uh, I think Linda wasn't dead yet, so he was, like, cheating on yeah. this girl with this other girl, and yeah, it was, like, yeah. the best <laughs> thing ever. I don't get his, like, the thing that confuses me a lot about, like, the few plot points we actually have is that I don't get why he wants Linda back so bad given yeah. he seems way happier with Molly. But it is it is an interesting thing too, right? That now when he's here on the beach uh, with her, you know, he, he, he wants to be with her, but he mostly doesn't because mm. I think, you know, he, he he's grieving the loss. On. He knows what's going on. And I think for him, this is an opportunity to reconnect with a memory for one last time mm. before moving forward again. I, I just want to add one more thing. I think what I find interesting here is that Armitage was broken by Wintermute, like, in this same way, uh, that currently someone mm. else is trying to break him. And I think it's, this is once again a moment of, ooh, he's so cool and so cool and so good, because, like, Armitage, like, started to remember who he really was, and it completely broke him. It fucked yeah. him up. Sure, He became sure. this trauma-driven thing. But Case who, like, had similar triggers, and they were being pushed the entire time throughout the plot. There was this whole thing of Linda coming up again and again and appearing in broadcasts for him, and mm. even, like, the drones in the sky once forming her face and everyone clapping. <laughs> his, his writing style is yeah. funny. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, like, still, he doesn't break. Right, I, like at all. Like the thing I find, like I get that, like as the protagonist, he has to move past this some way. But the fact that how little it affects him and how confident in he is in this not being real is says a lot to me again about how this is a self insert. Yeah. And Gibson wanted to look cool. He couldn't make Case weak even in this moment. I feel like, like how it started with like this very relatable paranoid character to yeah. then how it became to somehow this drug addict who at this point is like on drugs again mm -hmm. is yeah, really the confident in what's real and not which i find not very relatable like as someone who has like this similar paranoid experience right. similar trauma from like hacking from the crime world i am so delusional sometimes mm. like to just say it straight out like that it becomes hard especially even just when interacting with fiction sometimes for like the boundaries to be real between what's like in my dreams what's in my thoughts and what's the real world and he's just being actively deceived here and being given the thing he wants yeah. which is like his old girlfriend and and like i get that like even i myself like i know that something's not real and i can tell myself that but the fact that he's not drawn in at all by that i do think that's interesting yeah well and, and there's something to it as well that the only moment that we see real vulnerability from case is when wintermute blasts armitage slash quarto out the airlock right yes then and he and suddenly we, cares about armitage suddenly yeah. he After, cares about him so much and, and he's he like never, crying like, they're like fucking tears uh, streaming down his face and it's like i don't i don't emotionally resonate with this at all i don't understand no, like, why they, they, this they is dedicated where I, so much of this plot so far to finding out who armitage is and why he's right. manipulating them and kind of hating yeah. him like they didn't like armitage like he explicitly no, the guy, he and, sucks. And like the only reason like the only reason that we are given in plot for why he wanted to keep armitage alive is so he can be like half the antidote to his yeah, toxins yeah. right Right, um, and that's the only re the only thing that connected him to Armitage at all 
is like that one blackmail thing. Mm-hmm. And somehow he like really emotionally cares about, which I get that would be like the reasonable thing for him to do, but he doesn't give a shit about any other character in this yeah. story other than like right. Molly, I guess. Like he yeah. has no connection to Riviera whatsoever. He has no connection to anyone else. Armitage was this called guy the entire time, just this professional business suit guy. And suddenly he... Yeah. I, yeah. He doesn't even seem to have the same connection to Dixie. Like, this, the, the, no. his old mentor, you know? Dick, yeah. His companion! Yeah, no, Dixie, he grew up, like, th- when he first reconnected with Dixie, it was this whole emotional thing where he didn't know how to yeah. feel about it. But at this point, Dixie's just, I don't fuck, you yeah. know? Like, he's yeah. my companion. He starts hating him for how yeah. Dixie laughs. Yeah, that, right. That suddenly becomes a really big plot point where he starts flipping on as soon as Dixie starts laughing because it, like, hurt his ears. And it's... I, I like the the way like these like relationships between characters change throughout. It does not make sense to me whatsoever. But, well, well, okay. So here's one thing that I do think though, right? And I, this is just a thought that's coming mm. to me right now, is that a big piece of what Case feels is you know alienation from others, and it is alienation that is stemming from the thing that he loves most, which is cyberspace, which is mm-hmm. hacking. The fact that he is always interacting with these things in a virtual setting and that there is something about that. And especially these, you know, stored AIs and and and, and ROM memories of, of living individuals and stuff like that. There's something about it that just isn't quite the real thing. And I think that's exactly what is also happening in this chapter here on the beach. He is realizing on some level that this is not reality. And so although he is able to spend time inside of it and he's able to understand sort of these are the things about my memories that I love and that I feel he still knows on some level that it isn't real. And so he has to make a decision basically do I want to break out of this world mm. or do I not? I, I think some of this is, I find really interesting. This is going to be really nitpicky <laughs> and something Gibson couldn't know. But like personally, as a person who like, especially through hacking and through like the way I live my life, I end up spending more of my life online than in person. Sure. And I think that's like one of my main like reasons why I'm kind of in this delusional space where sometimes things shift. It's because so much on the internet starts feeling too real. Like a lot of my friends are just online, which is not to say a bad thing. It just right. makes it hard sometimes to know where like boundaries of space yeah. are and where things are. Where like I I don't know like I've had really bad nights mental health wise where like I don't know I was like completely out of it. It's been a while since I've been there, but where I was in VCs with friends, yeah, and to me it felt like they were in the room with me. Uh, and like I at some point certainly had to ask people like right you're not in this space with me like to me it kind of feels like it I know that's probably not true but I feel like that's why I find it so interesting that he as the person who spends more of his life in cyberspace is so so good at telling that apart from what happens in the real life I know like Gibson couldn't like intuitively know this but I think that would have made a lot of this story more interesting Hmm. if he struck like yeah, yeah, know. yeah. If, if if his sense of reality, that would also give William Gibson a lot more places to skip around, you know? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like, you could you could make so much more shit that just doesn't actually... You could do the fun hackers yeah. thing, 
where you just have dreams that look exactly the same as the rest of the film and you are not entirely sure which parts of this are dreams now and ooh, you yeah. can imagine this we might have left a few plot holes but what if it was just a dream ooh uh, and then suddenly you have the most dreamlike sequence and it's the one thing that's real which is like the, the whole this cat thing I think that Case does find himself kind of wondering about Mm. those boundaries here. And there's no real better example of that than what happens when on the beach, after having spent some time with Linda, he meets this little boy. And then somehow they stood in the surf, the three of them, and the boy's gums were wide and bright pink against his thin brown face. He wore ragged colorless shorts, limbs too thin against the sliding blue gray of the tide. I know you, Case said, Linda beside him. No, the boy said, his voice high and musical. You do not. You're the other AI. You're Rio. You're the one who wants to stop Wintermute. What's your name? Your Turing code. What is it? The boy did a handstand in the surf, laughing. His eyes were Riviera's, but there was no malice there. To call up a demon, you must learn its name. Men dreamed that once, but now it is real in another way. You know that case. Your business is to learn the names of programs, the long formal names, names the owners seek to conceal. True names. A Turing code's not your name. Neuromancer. Holy shit, the boy said. Holy shit! Holy shit! Holy shit! So we got two AIs. Yep. We got we got we got Winter Mutant Neuromancer, and uh, much like in Deus Ex. These two AIs are seeking to merge to become one powerful super entity or something like that. Yeah, it's it's like it's like Dave going through the Stargate. It's also like uh, Nomad in Star Trek merging with whatever or the V'ger merging with the machine planet. V'ger, V'ger, yeah. Um, but I do I do think that two characterizations of the different AIs are very interesting. Yeah. Wintermute is like the calculated one, the one that does planning, the one that does organization yes. and was meant to like uh, keep the, the, the Tessier-Ashpool family going and like organize that uh, and... And meanwhile, we have Neuromancer, whose entire point is to be like the the beach after death. Yeah. He like up you you like upload your brain into this, and like this was all created by like the mother of Free Chain, who like kind of was like, okay, fuck my husband. He's like stupid as shit. <laughs> I think the idea is that like you have AIs, and each of them is sort of connected to a mm. different part of. Uh, the world, yeah. right? Yeah. But like at the end of the day, both AIs were created to just keep the the Tessie Ashpool family yeah. going. Right. And right. like it was because there were like okay, so the thing about them is that they keep going back to cryogenic sleep and then coming back and like it's yeah. this whole thing. Uh, and there's like this these two people. It's like I do not remember their names, but like I I don't think we even it's get cool. to know. It's cool. Don't worry it's about just it. Ashpool, yeah. and she's like this yeah, year, yeah, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. And like she had a very different idea for where she wanted to go with the company than him. Also, he mostly wanted to fuck his daughters. That's like his main character tribe. Right. Like. Yes. 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 Uh, yes. Is that he Big wants to fuck clones guy, yeah. of his daughter? Um, yeah, weird <laughs> shit. Uh, and, and, and she was like, "No, I want this to go somewhere else." And he just kind of wanted it to end and like keep going the same way yeah. forever. I don't know. And she was like, "Okay, I want to go forever, but I also kind of want to die, I guess." 
Mm-hmm. And so she had like this really long diary and her goal was to upload it into Neuromancer so, so she could live on this beach she grew up on forever. I, I do not know why this French woman grew up in Rio, but we do not talk about that. Also, that peach, the, the, that peach, that piece living on the beach forever or whatever. Death again, it's just fucking Death Stranding. It's just like, there's no way that Kojima did not read this yes. book. Oh, you know yeah, what I mean? No, I, I think, think it's funny how the only person at this point who's living on that beach is Linda Lee. And specifically mm-hmm. just to bait yeah. Case in. Because Neuromancer right. at this point gives Case like the chance to stay there. Or well, basically right. he's trying to force him to stay there, but unfortunately Wintermute and Malcolm come up with this cool idea of like, what if we just started singing like the Scion dub, which is like this singing yeah, people they- are doing there to him. So he like wakes up or some shit yeah because the beats are just so powerful and they just have like this sick beat uh, and so we are we are uh, case is saved by the power of of, i I would assume reggae beats yeah and then we move on to the final Mm -hmm. bit of the book and I have no idea what the it's fuck a lot of action. happens there's at the some end of this stuff. book. It's we didn't genuine. even talk about the ninja. Like, <laughs> no, there's, right, the, there's, there's a ninja, ninja who shows a up. There's like he's clones a clone of them. There's like clone so many. ninja it's who's not, really good with a bow yeah, and arrow. Yeah. It's, and it's a mess. Analog, it's yeah. not, like, at this point, nothing matters anymore. No. It's just we know that he had to end the plot yeah. somehow because his deadline came up or some yep, shit. Yep, so yep. this is this is where I admit that I didn't actually finish the book. This has been a very busy month for me. I'm closing a show that I'm in, and uh, it doesn't matter. (laughs) And reading the book, when I was reading, I was just like having to go back and reread everything. So because because I was really trying to like absorb it all, which it it turns out was the wrong approach. It's like AJ trying to get all the non-existent achievements in Deus Ex. It's just like that's not how this works. I finished up the story by listening to the BBC radio drama adaptation of Neuromancer, and of course, like. The, the neuromancer scene all that stuff they've they made god they made a fully sentient ai that has merged with another fully right. sentient ai and now there's just I like i think a, the funniest thing is how at the end of the book nothing has changed and i think yeah that's the most that's the most bold choice gibson has made in this yeah. entire book he, i didn't expect this much courage from him i expected him to be like oh five years later and now everything's different but yeah. no he was really courageous in making it being like no Actually, nothing's changed. We don't really know why we did this. And that's honestly cool. I like that ending, even if it feels very rushed and he never really come up. Like, I don't know. I feel like I am going to read the other two books at some point. They're probably not going to (laughs) be as good. Brian, was there anything in that adaptation that jumped out at you Well, the adaptation's pretty straightforward. It's like really nothing did jump out at me because it's just like it's it's neuromancer without all of the style right because it's it's trying to tell it sure. more straightforwardly it does lean into the noir thing a little bit more by making it narrated right so mm. uh case is narrating everything and a bunch of the pros ends up being in first person so that way we can get some of the mm. some of those details in there but once you get to that part after we meet neuromancer and he gets back out of of cyberspace out of the beach and we just have all the action and everything. There's just a lot of thudding sounds. There's just a lot of <laughs> yeah, like, something about an arrow. They're... Yeah, and for some reason, for some reason, Malcolm needs to be shot at that point. I still yeah. don't get why we had to do him dirty like that. Yeah, that's a bummer. He did so much. He, we, my boy, deserved better than that. But yeah, no, it, it that is not honestly 
at all different from what reading it feels like. So, yeah, you know that this is really where we land. Um, Most people are dead, (laughs) except except that Case and Molly made it out alive. And we get an epilogue, which, as Maya, you were saying, nothing really changed very much other than the fact that I guess now there is this super intelligent AI uh, that's able to more or less do whatever it wants. Well, and like Case gets a bunch of money, but he has to spend it all. Essentially, like he's just sort yeah, of back at square one. Yeah, he wants to do drugs again. Yeah, that's like I do right. think that's funny. How his entire reason he spends all the money because we didn't really elaborate that at the start. But one of the things they did when they fixed his like toxin thing is that they gave him a new pancreas and liver that is makes it so he cannot like uh he can't yeah. go high. high. He can't take stimulants. And so we get the closing lines of the book. He spent the bulk of his Swiss account on a new pancreas and liver, the rest on a new Ono Sendai and a ticket back to the sprawl. He found work. He found a girl who called herself Michael. And one October night, punching himself past the scarlet tears of the Eastern Seaboard Fission Authority, he saw three figures, tiny, impossible, who stood at the very edge of one of the vast steps of data. Small as they were, he could make out the boy's grin, his pink gums, the glitter of the long gray eyes that had been Riviera's. Linda still wore his jacket. She waved as he passed. But the third figure, close behind her, arm across her shoulders, was himself. Somewhere, very close, the laugh that wasn't laughter. He never saw Molly again. That's it. That's the end. I don't know if he found a girl who called herself Michael and is supposed to be transphobia or not, but it just... (laughs) It kind of reads as that. I, I think he just found himself a big titty punk GF. Like Probably. that's yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like yeah, I, I call fine. myself no, Michael. I, yeah, but that that does raise uh, I think an interesting question that that I that I've had too, which is you know there is something about the cyberpunk genre that is really influential for a lot of yes. trans people. It's, it is this a, is the, this uh, is like I was about to say this is like one of my closing statements is I think this is the yeah. first piece of cyberpunk media where I cannot make any character queer. Uh, and if I could have, that would have been my entire thing throughout this episode. Yeah. Right. I did this with hackers. Like, that's what's, yeah. like, basically all I said on your episode. It's not hard with hackers no, at all. Like, Everybody's fucking it's, queer it's, and hackers. Just, yeah, I do think that's Except the interesting the cops, thing about the cyberpunk with Gibson or maybe cyberpunk at the time is that this whole accidental queer coding, because let's be real, a lot yeah. of cyberpunk is very accidentally queer, didn't occur at all, which with like the whole, like, I get like that it doesn't even happen with any of the body mod stuff. I do yeah. find it interesting right. that there is right. not a single mention of trans people, be it derogatory, be it whatever, because that's usually like the very least we get in like a cyberpunk universe with body mods is that there's yeah. like, ooh, I was a boy once upon a time, which like, I think that's right. one of the interesting things about Ghost in the Shell as well is that there's this like in-story thing where people aren't sure if, like, she has always been a girl, or if that's just the body she chose. Uh, and, like, at least in some of the later series, it's very heavily implied that that's just the chosen body and not actually, like, sure true gender. In many yeah. quotes, obviously yeah. not how I would phrase that, but kind of how the story phrases it. 
which I do find interesting and which I do find lacking in this, but not lacking in the sense of this needs to be here. I just find it interesting given that that's such a yeah. big trope in the genre. This then like kind of spawned like well, not it's, just, it's interesting yeah. too that Case is inside of Molly's body from behind, you know, like in her brain mm. and in her yeah. body. But it, it even that doesn't really have a trans no, like subsex that, to it, you know. Yeah, the fact that that's both like somehow arouses him, but isn't like in any way discussed as like a gender thing which i think this once again brings up a lot of the like thing where gibson is not very imaginative like he writes really well he's not good at coming up with stories and maybe that changes in his later works but maybe yeah that's definitely what i observe here is that like he can write things well he doesn't know what to write about yeah he's able to capture a feeling and that seems to be the big strength of neuromancers he captured the feeling of what it feels like to be yes a, a there, there's more emotions in this than there is story as far as feelings go i wanted to express my feeling of appreciation yes. to you maya for coming <laughs> on our so show much. once again if if folks are interested in uh getting more info about what you're up to reading your writing or anything like that okay, what should they, should they do go to my website maya.crimeu.gay uh, <laughs> or go to my Tumblr, which is Nyan Crimeu, N Y A N Crimeu, with a W at the end, uh, as in crime and mew mixed, uh, like the cat sound. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, alternatively, I am currently back on Twitter, at least for as long as they let me, which we will <laughs> see. For a second. Uh, or, well, I've been back for a while. It's just my small person that kind of just accidentally started blowing up again. So I guess for now, you can also follow me on Twitter at Awawa, who am I? That is A-W-A-W-A, <laughs> who am I? Uh, so, yeah, because that certainly isn't me. It would be crazy if this were Maya. Uh, <laughs> that would be wild. That would be fucking crazy. Um, and, yeah, if you're if you're listening to this episode and you're a first-timer, you know, you came in because you wanted to hear from Maya, we also have another yes. episode with Maya where we watched Hackers uh, and talked about it at, at, at some length. So go check that out. We've got other stuff in our back catalog as well, and some of that is on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Worst of All gets you access to our entire back catalog, including us talking about a lot of video games and stuff like that, some of which have to do with what we've been talking about today so get on that if you're not on that we appreciate you and i guess i just wanted to close this by saying that like i think both of you i was trying for a while to really figure out every single thing that was going on yeah and so i went on google and i typed in um neuromancer confusing and i got (laughs) so many hits so many fucking hits and all of them had the exact same advice which is just relax and go with it and i think what i have come to realize as a result of doing this episode is that sometimes when it comes to reading and assessing media i just need to relax and go with it so that's what i'm going to try to do that's what i recommend you do and uh i'm the worst of all possible joshes and i'm the worst of all possible brian's see you next week